this was like happening. I think it was Mike and Avi were working on the signal processing of it. But you know, they present stuff. You'd hear things. You know, or you'd maybe see something. I I think I was sort of ignoring it because, I mean, it's all signal. Sounded a little wild to me then. But then when they finally got the maps to look good by doing global signal aggression, then it's like, wow. I guess. Yeah. What is this? Like, how did you do this? Well, the poldrome, as we call it, Russ Poldrome's brain. That's just n of one. That was a little extreme. So we were like, let's scale up to one of magnitude. Let's do ten of them. Steve Nelson is not Minnesota. He's a postdoc at the time. We're sitting there like, I'm like, just like, I want to do this, but I don't have the money. And he goes, you know, Nico, there's a 90% discount scanning for midnight to 5 a.m. And in my memory, I slapped him on the back like really hard and like let out a yell and was like, and he goes, Nico, you know that's when we put the DBS lead. I was like, what do you mean? Like, where? Like, right there? It's like, well, I'm just, you know, I don't know what's the coordinate, but, like, pretty much, I think that's the VIM, and I think this is where you would put it in a globus pallidus. And I was like, get out. Like, are you serious? I got really excited because we had a meeting with the legendary Avi Snyder, who's completely night, night active. Like, you can't find him for 4 p.m. So we're having a 10 p.m. meeting, and I, I, I was treating some kids with 10 stroke with CMT, constraint-induced movement therapy. And Avi was like, Nico, that's really mean. You do that to kids. You should do that to yourself. And we should study it. And then everybody laughed. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, but I, I, I had to meet with the IRB like two, three times about doing this to myself. I couldn't stop laughing because I like signed my own consent form. where, And I had something about it, how I would not force myself to continue in my study if I didn't want to. It's, it's like very tough to me. <laughs> it was like, yeah. They're like, that's good. Are you sure you, you just want me to do this because it's kind of silly? And they're like, yeah. Legal said, just do that. You, you sign yourself up and you own clinical study and then you, you know, don't coerce yourself. You have to be a little insane to be, uh, pencils wrong, right? I mean, yeah. the first, first time I was like, it's like Evan and I were yeah. admitting it to each other. Like, I'm probably whispering, it's like, pencils wrong. It's like, like yeah. it's not that anybody hear us just yet, you know? Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Stimulating Brains. In this episode, we had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Nico Dosenbach, who's a clinician scientist at Washington University. We first dove into Dr. Dosenbach's engaging path to medicine and ultimately pediatric neurology, drawing from his journey some really meaningful lessons for young and upcoming clinicians and scientists. I particularly found Dr. Dosenbach's research philosophy engaging and inspiring because of his innovative approach which sometimes uniquely employs self-experimentation. Perhaps a good reference to bring in now to support this is his nerdy version of a club or a gang called the Midnight Scan Club, where him and colleagues would take turns scanning themselves in an MRI scanner after hours to offset some of the costs uh, with scanning during the day in a busy MRI facility. Now, uh, this sort of was 
very ripe ground for the pink cast study, which um, you know, was stemming from an interest in uh, appreciating uh, plasticity in the human brain. And I think a unique take on this was uh, Dr. Dosenbach's uh, experience, as he uh, generously shared with us, not only from the perspective of putting together the ethics application for which he will be a participant uh, and but also in his perspective in having to adopt to um, wearing a cast on his dominant arm for two weeks. Dr. Dosenbach's uh, recent achievements include two nature papers in consecutive years. This is a rarity in the world of fMRI research. And we try and pick his brain about what were some of the factors uh, for success. Now, there's quite a number of other studies that I don't have enough time to list here, but notably, uh, we go through some of his uh, recent um, findings and refining the Penfield homunculus, which I found is quite intriguing and uniquely takes us through the process of um, uh, looking at these results and, and interpreting them and, and presenting them in, in a way, uh, in, a, in an impactful uh, nature paper. So thank you all for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So Nico, thank you so much for, for doing this. I will have already introduced you by now, so we can directly dive into it. Um, and as you may know, for to break the ice, I, I usually ask uh, about your free time. So what, what do you most passionately do when not involved in science or medicine? Any hobbies these days? Oh boy, I know. Uh, I got that thing where my hobbies rotate. <laughs> uh, Currently? It, it, yeah, so it kind of, uh, you know, it, it's like they come and go and then they come back again. Trying to think. Lately, I've just been mostly working, which is very boring. Hmm. Um, Your kids, yeah, yeah, kids, kids right? stuff. Yeah, they, you know, they play new sports. Um, I tried to get my son into soccer, which you know, from German when he was younger, and he didn't want to, and now he's seven, and all of a sudden he wants to, and he's like, "We have to play soccer," and I was like, "Yeah, I'm very excited about that for this weekend." But remember, I tried to drag you when you were like three and a half, and you screamed that you hated it. Anyway. <laughs> do you play soccer? Not you... well, you know, not more than the usual German kid. Um, just for fun, you know, not in a club team. Got it. I like it, but that wasn't any good. L let's talk about the German stuff a little bit. So so we're both from a small area in Germany, I think called the Black Forest. So, But I must disclose that even though my town is called La in the Black Forest, it's actually not in the Black Forest. So not a, I'm not the real deal. I'm in the Rhine Valley at the border of the mountains we call Black Forest. But you, I think, are really from up there, from a small town. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's right on the edge. So it's Black Forest, but there's some people who are like high up in the mountains who think we're just pretenders uh, called Gütlingen, population 1,000, or so the sign says. I don't think it's 1,000. I think it's less. Um, you know, there's like farmers and cows and hills and trees and not much to do. I was just back there this last summer. I think people go to bed at 9 p.m. Reliably. Uh, why not? <laughs> There's nothing to do. But I think you mentioned when you were in Germany, your kids thought the German cars are no good. 
that right? Yeah, I tried to play this game to get them engaged of, you know, what's better in America, what's better in Europe or Germany. And the results were kind of wild because I would like to think that, you know, German cars are renowned for, you know, being fun and quality. And they, when I, when I started playing the game, the first thing that shot out of their mouth was like, American cars are better. And what I realized is about the size. So they started an Audi A4 hatchback. I think my daughter called it a clown car because it's so small. <laughs> And she claimed she didn't have space for her knees. And I was like, I used to ride, you know, at my current size in the Peugeot 105 with four other people my size. And nobody thought they didn't fit, you know. So I guess it's all relative. But um, What car do you have in the, in the States? I have like a VW T1, which okay. is much bigger than like, you know, it's an SUV, but it's not giant. Um, but yeah, they they were like, Dad, uh, we don't want to go in a small car. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you have no idea. Um, great. So when you were 15 years old, living in that small um, good thing in town in the Black Forest, you kind of decided to move across the Atlantic. Why? To the US? That's a great question. Where's the 90s, you know? Um, you know, Michael Jordan, Clinton. Yes. Uh, partly, I think, wanted to get away from the little village. Um, it, it just seemed like exciting, you know, to, like an adventure to you know, learn English, go to like American university, which seemed, you know, like, I feel like, you know, even then they would have those brochures with the beautiful pictures. And I feel like German universities, they didn't have any brochures and often have like a beautiful campus with the trees and the fancy grass, you know, just be like buildings in the city kind of. So that seems very exciting and appealing. And, um, yeah, just, so they get away, see the world. world. Get away. But so, so sorry, do you say the German ones are more pretty or that the US ones are more pretty? The brochures? Oh, the, the, the fancy American ones, you know, they have your They're nice. quadrangle campus, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Although you might. I don't know that much. I don't know that much about German universities, but like, why do you often see a building just in the town? It'll have a sign. Yeah, and like, oh, yeah. University building. That's just the building. I, I recently read, though, that the first map in the world that was created where the word America was on it was made by a scholar at Freiburg University where I studied. So, you know, it's it's old stuff. It's also pretty there. I think they have nice campuses too. But you're probably yeah. right. The marketing is, is, is off. And yeah, that was the marketing. Because, yeah, recently, like this summer, I was in Tübingen and they have their, like, historical stuff in the old castle, which is super cool. And, of course, Freiburg's beautiful. Yeah, so yeah. I think I just was focused on the brochures. I, mean, I was good. a kid, you know. And I mean, you were 15, that means you didn't have the high school diploma, the Abitur yet, I assume, right? So you, but you still could go to college directly? No, actually, so I, I went to learning with for someone was 15, and then I graduated at 16, and then I just went. So I did Abitur. Um, That's early. Wow. Yeah. Um, I did have a recurring nightmare at one point when I was like in residency that I got a call from Germany that my Abitur paperwork was wrong and I had to go back to high school in Germany. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, like when you have this dream, like you forgot about the final exam, mine was like, I have to go back to gymnasium. <laughs> yeah. Good. Do you think your first impression of America at that age of 15 was in La Jolla, San Diego? And and I yeah. must disclose, I, I just heard um, Mike, Mike Oaken interview you greatly at the, the US Think Tank. So that's where I have all this intel from. Um, what was that experience from, uh, like, like in in San Diego there? Yeah, I mean, it was the I never been to US. 
Um, I hadn't been many places at all. And, you know, I, I, I landed at San Diego airport. I remember like it was yesterday I got picked up, driven to La Jolla, which I didn't know was like a special place. I went to this house that was like one of the nicest houses in La Jolla uh, on the hill. And it was like Spanish hacienda style with a courtyard and a fountain and looking over La Jolla Cove with an endless pool, like in the movie. And I was like, oh, America is like in the movie. <laughs> I need to move to America. Like, this is what I need to do. Later, I was like, yeah, that was like a sampling error, kind of. Yeah, it <laughs> like, like it. Completely unrepresentative, but it was like, you know, impressive. And I had my mind blown. I think somebody asked me if I wanted fresh squeezed orange juice. Mm. I didn't even know what to say. I was like, and that was an employee, right? That was yeah, yeah. And and I was like, then somebody was like, you can answer. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Did, by the way, did you see the Arnie documentary on Netflix that was trending recently? By any chance? Maybe like some clips. I don't think I watched yeah. the whole thing. So it, it kind of made me think of your story because he also, I think, you know, comes from this very rural Austrian village and really wanted to go to the states and um i think uh you know s similar story made it there of course obviously and uh as you did um so that that's really cool so what happened next once um you were in san diego i think new york city was was the next stop right yeah i, I just i did like some language thing at ucsd um learned english um and then went back for 13th grade in germany They still had 13 and, and then uh, the next year went to Columbia University in New York City, which I'd never been to New York City. I mean, I'd only been to San Diego and not even all of it the summer before. And that was quite the, that was the shock. I mean, I I didn't, I had no clue what I was getting into, but it was, it was fun. I, I, I mean, I showed up with a suitcase. I remember I didn't have bedding or a pillow, anything, because I thought it was like a hotel. I don't know why I thought that because I saw the brochures and I was like, oh, they'll have that stuff there. You like and I got the brochures. The, yeah, and I got into the room and it looked more like a jail cell, you know, like not fancy with a little mattress. And I think the first night I slept just like on the mattress and then and then I think I called my mom and she was like, I, I think you're going to have to go buy a pillow. And so I went, you know, bought a $4 pillow at Woolworths on Broadway. Nice. Long gone. And I remember trying to cross the street at 116th and Broadway and there being so many lanes and just sort of thinking like well in Germany Autobahn doesn't have as many lanes at all and the yellow cabs are flying and I was literally like sort of afraid to cross the street like I made a mistake but the I mean in my in my head it, it feels like a few weeks later it, it I was acting like I'd always lived in New York City so I guess yeah. I still had some plasticity in my brain because it was like whatever Isn't that fascinating, right? How how fast we can adapt. So so yeah. Um, and New York City of all places, that's amazing. But I think you did not study at Columbia after all, right? They sent you a bill of. Uh, oh, I did. I did undergrad. Oh, you did. Okay. You did? Med okay. school. I didn't. Oh yeah, for undergrad I went to Columbia, and then, you know, I wasn't sure what to do afterwards. So I thought maybe MD PhD. You, you sort of keep your options open. Um, maybe, maybe just medical school. I, You just grad school, and then I got into Columbia, and um, it, and uh, at the time I was on an F1 student visa. Most MD PhD programs, you had to have a green card or be a citizen to get the the scholarship. Um, 
And so Columbia was like, you come here, you can do the MD, PhD, you won't get paid doing the PhD. And by the way, you have to have full four years of med school tuition plus interest in an escrow account before the first day of classes, which I mean, it, it, yeah, it was an exorbitant amount. I was like close to $200,000 then. So I called my dad and I said, dad, do you have $200,000? I don't think he said anything. He was just laughing. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't do that. And then Fortunately for me, that one of the few schools, the only one I knew about that gave scholarships even to F1 students was WashU. So uh, in St. Louis, and I'm going doing the MD PhD there. Um, couldn't have afforded medical school. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I didn't even try. Maybe I could have taken out a loan to become a plastic surgeon or something, but it would have been a very different life. What, what made you go into med school in the first place? That's a great question. Um, I think I came more from the science and then like from biology, molecular biology. And then, well, you know, I was young, but I started to realize, you know, like a lot of the sort of cool, important questions are driven by medicine. And, and that's sort of where the, like, that's why there's funding. That's why people are doing this. Um, you know, like it was sort of the beginning of, you know, like sequencing, you know, like mm -hmm. Metner and stuff. But that stuff was super cool. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, this, I was the child, essentially, still, but it seemed like the, the people who also had an MD <laughs> seemed to have nicer stuff and more confident and happy. If you had to afford cigarettes. Yeah. There's <laughs> that. Yeah. I saw the postdocs I worked with. As, I was like in the lab as an undergrad. This was before that NIH forbids splitting postdoc salaries. They would be from poor countries and um, living in Manhattan with kids on, on like essentially half a postdoc salary. And even though I wasn't materialistic at all, it looked like, I was like, oh boy, I don't want to just eat rice all the time. And then I talked to some folks and they were like, yeah, you can do any PhD, or, you know, met doctors do research. And I was like, I, I, I want to look into that. Seems like a good idea. Right. So you ended up in St. Louis and I think you mentioned that there are many Dosenbus in, in St. Louis. Is that, is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I've run into a bunch. Never run into any Dosenbus where I'm from. There's not that many. And um, interesting because it's like, I mean, we're kind of where we're from, Baden. There's sort of a, a lot of people settled from that region in the St. Louis area around like 1840s forward. And even tell. I mean, it was front, front. It was like frontier country then, and also what I was told was that people thought that because you know you got the Mississippi going down, you got the Missouri going uh, west, uh, or oh, coming from the west. Um, it, it reminded them of the Lower Rhine, so where you're from, like the climate they were growing like peasling and stuff, and um, I think land was cheap, and um, you know there had just been the uh, failed uprising 1848 against the monarchies so i think a bunch of people were like run away or go to jail kind of <laughs> so uh yeah you just see it like like um the names and stuff you know even some of the food still like if you go to like the smaller villages um kind of fun that's good so so you landed in st louis and, and that was md phd um you studied medicine but you also did a phd there um and i think you shared the time with 
many of the greats in our field and in you know um, imaging community because it was the time when resting state was kind of um, identified, invented, whatever you want to call it. I think in episode 29 of this podcast, I interviewed Mike Fox, who is also my mentor in Boston. And um, you and Mike were lab mates back in the day. Um, could, could you talk a bit like broadly about these these days in the lab or in the broader St. Louis area? Um, I think when we met last time, you mentioned an episode where, where Mike um, told you it was all signal and was really excited about the, the resting state stuff. That, that would be super interesting to hear from that time. Yeah, that was an amazing time. I mean, I think everybody who was there at the time essentially got lucky. I would say the main person was Mark Rakel, who's still around, who just, I, I, you know, he's a special genius amongst all the geniuses. And he had vision, and there were other geniuses like Mike Fox, um, uh, you, you know, who they're sort of a perfect, perfect storm. Yeah, I mean, I remember all sorts of stuff. The, it's all signal, you know. I feel like that story has been told so many times because Mike's a legend. Y you know, there's probably some uh, <laughs> embellishments. But like it, the way I remember it was sort of like there was something going on that was, you know, after hours shenanigans. And, you know, somebody is like, you know, Mike's had too much to drink. He's now claiming that all bold is signal and there's no noise. And, you know, got to keep him away from the prospective students because they'll think he's crazy. And he was talking about resting state correlations, right? Which I don't what year that must have been, but it was sort of like I don't even know that them was probably the two thousand three paper out. That's about it. Um, and uh, yeah, the other, th other thing I remember was, you know, first time I heard about it, I was like, okay, that's crazy, like whatever, that that can't be right. And then, uh, and then uh, at some point, Jamie and Fair was also there at the time. Was like, I'm just gonna go asked Mark for the code. And he got up and Mark was like down the hall, which was pretty bold because, you know, we were like second, third year grad students. And he, he was gone for an hour and he came back. I was like, I got the code. Mark, wow. Mark, Mark says we should be force multipliers. We should get into this. So then we just, you know, started messing with the, the, like these kinds of analyses and the results are still, they speak for themselves. Like if you've done task after my studies, which that's what everybody was doing, you'd be like, recognize these patterns and sort of I think Mike and Mark converted everybody like in like a few weeks and then no, you know, nobody looked back again onto sort of it was like before and after it was like a state change um, which is super lucky you know I mean we yeah, fell into it super super cool lots to unpack here so, so you were in the neighbor, neighboring lab to Mike Reichel right at the time but yeah. same center that's like an open floor plan and, you know, it still exists. It's still called the Neuroimaging Laboratories. He kind of started it and like it grew into multiple laboratories, but it was always kind of a sort of, you know, everybody was still close together kind of. It was fenced yeah. off. And so Damien and I were with Steve Peterson who had worked with Mark in the very beginning with PET. And then it was just like you just walk down the hall kind of thing and check into Mark's office, see if he's there, ask him if you can have his code. And as I know from from Randy Buckner, uh, once told me that I think um, Mike and so so apparently it was not easy to get a good signal. Like you 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 used a seed somewhere, let's say motor cortex, seeing the other motor cortex. Like like in the early reports, wasn't even that trivial. Um, and then uh, Mike and Abby Snyder apparently spent um, nights and nights on on trying to get the code to 
show something meaningful. And I think the big breakthrough was actually the, at the time, the global signal regression, right? And then all of a sudden, if you even tried it myself, if, if you do that or, you know, don't do it, it's such a big difference. All of a sudden you see the light and see the networks. Is that is that what the code was about or what the Yeah, idea? absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, th this was like happening, I think it was Mike and Avi were working on the, on the signal processing of it, but you know, you they present stuff, you'd hear things, you know, or you maybe see something. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I, I, I think I was sort of ignoring it because, I mean, it saw signal sounded a little wild to me then, not gonna lie. But then when they finally got the maps to look good by doing global signal regression, then it's like, wow, I guess, yeah, what is this? Like, how did you do this? Because it, you know, it looks. I mean, you know, if you like imaging, if you like neuroanatomy, there's stuff you know about neuroanatomy. So then, you put the seed in the place, and you go, "Well, that's how it's supposed to look. How'd you do that?" Um. So, and it, I, I mean, I feel like it caught on like wildfire. At least I watched you right away. Um, and you know, I would say Mark and his group—they're just so generous. It was never like that's our stuff. Do your yeah. own thing. It was like you should try this. It's really cool. Would you like the code? Would you like some sample data? Amazing, you know. So that's, that's great. And if if you look at the at the Google Scholar pages of of almost everybody that what was at WashU at the time, you know, it's it's crazy how many citations you guys have on these earlier papers and how you know impactful that that was. I think um, so. Really cool time, right place to be. Um, so maybe it was good that you had an F one visa. Yeah, into absolutely. You never know how it's gonna pan out. That's so. So it, yeah, I not to get too upset if something doesn't work out because you know, I was like, well, maybe this was actually the better thing that happened. So yeah, I was yeah. definitely super lucky. Speaking about your earlier um, research career, who were key mentors in your career and turning points, also including clinical work, um, the people that did influence you and the turning points in, in this part of your career? I think my key turning point was, it, you know, I think about this sometimes, like, peer mentoring as an undergrad because then I went to Columbia I was very lost my freshman year because it was a big change from high school in Germany it was kind of like I didn't know you could go study biochemistry like every night other than like a night or two before the exam you know like so I didn't actually do well my freshman year I was sort of bewildered and I met these two guys uh, Arun Singh and Marius Hentier were like my friends and, and they were both like and they were like academically minded and Rune wanted to go to medical school and, and it's it like Nico you, you're doing this wrong like you gotta like study you gotta go to class you gotta take notes you gotta do the homework assignments and I'm like I, di I didn't used to do that I was like this is different this is like a serious university like you're wasting your life you're like think about how much money is being paid for you to be here mm -hmm. it kind of worked and then um, they, they, yeah they, they sort of showed me the ropes that, that was like I don't know what I would have done that hadn't happened because I I was just floating. I didn't know what was going on around me. And then, you know, after that, it, that's it. that was probably most important. And then I would say after that, it would probably be the people at WashU who, who sort of gave me a chance. Because I was a little unusual candidate. I was, like, very young. and I don't even know. I mean, my luck is unbelievable because I twice missed my flight to fly to St. Louis to do my interview. Okay, wow. It. Like five minutes, I was like, I remember sprinting. I didn't, it was flying out of New York and wherever I was connecting in like Midtown, I missed the train by like, you know, 30 seconds. I was like sprinting on a plane before I was gone and then I missed my flight. And the third time I called 
at WashU Med School Admissions, room 100. I don't never got her name, but there's a person that she was like, son, I'm not supposed to reschedule you. They told me that if you twice miss your med school interview and have to reschedule, it's a character flaw, but you just sound very young and you seem like a nice person. So I'm going to do this one more time for you, but don't miss it. And I didn't. And I sometimes think about that one because before That's I turned that point. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> but I think I was like 19 maybe. So I was just a knucklehead. Um, of course. So, you know, people like that. Steve Peterson, of course, you know, he, he has my PhD mentor. Mark, so as like a super mentor. You know, I wasn't in his lab. It's like everybody was sort of in his orbit. Um, you know, yeah, and then peer mentoring, you know, I mean, I feel like, yeah. Um, and it's a yeah. big difference from German high school to US university undergrad biochemistry. So, so that must have been, you know, an important wake up call. Um, it's probably oh, yeah. to to um, miss the train. I got like a 49 on my first test, which was an F. I didn't really know that was an F right away. Yeah. And I, I, I thought of, since there was something going on, because I tried to buy the textbook, but it was like $220. And I didn't have that much money. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to buy that book. I mean, I feel like in high school, you never really needed the book. Yeah. I would just borrow one for like an evening. And then I would see the other kids in the class study biochemistry like every night, like weeks in advance. And I would just sort of be like, I wonder why they're doing that. That seems silly. And then, and then uh, I'd sign up for biochemistry, which is a junior level class as a first semester freshman. Cause I didn't know you had to take other classes. And I learned the test. I just completely failed it. And then I remember the professor was like, can, can you talk to me? And she was like, she was so nice. She's like, why are you in this class? I was like, well, I want to be a biochemistry major. It's like, what are you a freshman? I'm like, yeah. It's like, you know, you have to like take chemistry and biology first. I was like, I do. They let me register. I was just like some phone system, you know, it was no check. I just didn't know. <laughs> and then she's like, you, do you have an academic advisor? I was like, ah, oh, I think so, but I haven't met with them. And she's like, you should meet with them and they will help you like pick out your classes. And then I dropped it. I didn't get the F on my record. And then I went back to chemistry, which was hard enough. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> but right, because in Germany, you, you, I, I don't, I, I don't know how it works. It's like, yeah, I thought you know, I didn't know anybody who'd done this before, like an adult. Of course, like I, I need to sign up for biochemistry if I'm going to be a biochemistry major. I, I thought that's how it worked. Yeah, yeah, lots, okay. lots of help, lots of luck. Absolutely, yeah, great. But also lots of courage and balls. So you know, amazing to to move over at that age, and um, uh, so so. That's an achievement. Why child neurology, like for your clinical career? But, yeah, I mean, that one seems more obvious. I mean, I feel like you probably agree with me. You would like are interested in the brain. There's nothing else. Like, can't. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm a little jealous of what, you know, cardiologists can do, but, you know, it's a pump that wheezes blood. It, you know, the brain is, is the most interesting thing to me in the universe. And, so like it was like you know essentially like neurology or psychiatry or neurosurgery or maybe neuroradiology. I settled on neurology pretty quickly. Um, uh, you know, neurosurgery too intense. Psychiatry was too slow and too much talking. Mm. And neuroradiology, I strongly considered until I realized I would have to spend like years looking at chest films, and I was like, I can't do that. Like I really don't care. Like bones fractures. 
Yeah. But if it had started straight up with neuroradiology, like maybe, but the, the years of general. Yeah. So then that neurology, and then I I just did the rotations and peds. You know, you're an adult neurologist, but like I select peds that patients are cute and you can pick them up and, you know, um, it's just like a different vibe. It's like a, what was the litmus test I was told? It was like, when people tell you that your entire team has to dress up on Halloween to go to work, do you think that's awesome or do you think that's terrible? If you think it's awesome, you should do peds. <laughs> you know, so I was like, I think that's awesome. Like, to go on rounds of Scooby-Doo or whatever. Like, how fun is that, you know? So, Totally agree. And I think you mentioned it's never their fault um, when, when yeah. we answer that question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, what? That's, yeah, you know, it's like kids are... Kids are kids. Why yeah. is picking them up an advantage, though? Like, why... I, I like I like picking up kids. Don't get yeah. me wrong. It's, that's fun. But... um. For if they are your patient, is that helpful to pick them up? Can you? Well, it's just more like you know, like with the exam and stuff. It's just sort of like I don't know. It's like a baby or something. You're yeah. like, hey, what's your tone? It's not like, sir, <laughs> could you please come back? You know, like yeah, got it. Got it. You don't you like you don't like if you have to tackle a patient that's running away from the floor in the hallway. It's not that big a deal, right? If you do it with a grown person, you know, because they... anyway, it, I don't. It's it just good. seems like. Even more handy. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's fast forward to more present times. Um, one, I think, um, from as an outsider, one key prerequisite that fueled many of your recent hits is, is based um, on data from the Midnight Scan Club. Can you talk about that? So what, what it is and maybe also why it was so important for all your papers going forward? Oh, yeah. I love talking about it. So the story as I remember, which may not be the truth, is that you know, Jonathan Power had had this paper and a bunch of other status rate and the Harvard group about head motion, which was very depressing to me. So I was almost, and I was just finishing my training, like Pete's and Oak Fellowship. I was like, I, I might have to do something totally different because I do love MRI. And I was like, maybe you could get the EFIS, like, you know. Um, and then, sorry, the paper claimed that all was just motion artifacts. Well, the one it, it, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. motion artifacts have sort of fueled false discoveries, especially in developmental research, yeah. which much of that's true. But at the time, it was like very upsetting. Like I was having like bad sleep about it, right? Like, what am I going to do? Not just me, people were talking about it. And so um, I said, like, I, I need to, there needs to be a way out. And then, so if the, the moment was when, uh, Steve Peterson and Tim Lauman at WashU had gotten Russ Poldrack's myconectome data, uh, where he'd scanned himself like a hundred times over a year when he was the chair of neurosciences at UT Austin. And those just so much data, um, hours and hours and hours and hours of high quality data as low motion subject, where you, you know, for one, you don't have to worry about motion. Plus, you don't even have to worry about across people comparisons. You can like study one brain. It seemed really appealing. And so I started tagging along sort of looking over Tim Lauman's shoulder who was doing the analyses. And when he was showing the first results, especially the fact that, you know, the group average brain, it's not a thing. It's it's a it's a reification of sort of like an analysis stream. It's not really how brains exist in the world, which you ever go to like neuropathology rounds, you know. No. It's like one at a time, it's a physical structure. But it's just math, the group average brain. So so that's like super appealing and and I was like, I wanna do that. And I had some interesting patients. I wanted to study like low end 
And then essentially the idea was like, well, the poldrome, as we call it, rest poldrome brain, that's just N of one. That was a little extreme. So we were like, let's scale up to one of magnitude. Let's do 10 of them. Uh, but I didn't have any money. I had, I had some like tiny amounts of funding. Like I had like $10,000 in free scan time because as an instructor, I just, I was finishing my fellowship, I think. And then Steve Nelson, who's not Minnesota, he's a postdoc at the time. We're sitting there like seeing Tim present Lauman. And then I'm like, just like, I want to do this, but I don't have the money. And he goes, you know, Nico, there's a 90% discount scanning from midnight to 5 a.m. And in my memory, I slapped him on the back like really hard. And like let out a yell and was like, that's it. That's what we're doing. He was like, got worried because he knew I was, we were going to do that. And him and I, and then we signed up some other folks, um, you know, it's just, I think we spent $12,000 on scan charges, but we scanned 10 people, 15 plus hours each, always after midnight. Um, we got a really nice data set, but it was like, you know, like a shoestring budget. Um, it- and then just started doing, you know, simple functional activity and other task stuff um, without group averaging. And that, you know, that took, I mean, it's a, it's a really cool approach. It wasn't super hypothesis driven. It was more like, if we do that, we'll see cool stuff. And we did. Not so great for is, grants. You need a better story for a grant. Makes sense. Is, is, is there a thing to be said that I feel like there's a, there used to be a big push for Big N. Um, we, we'll get to your nature paper yeah. on the BWAS as well, right? But there's also, I think, some push for low end but high quality, right? So I've heard somebody call them human primate studies, where you essentially take individuals but deep phenotype them and, and then analyze it. Is that like is that the current trend where we have these two extremes that people like in the field, do you think? I think so. I mean, those yeah. are the extremes I like. Um I think, uh, yeah, like we, we, as a joke, we would refer to some of the Midnight Scan Club participants as monkeys because it's like, oh, monkey, monkey yeah. seven coming tonight to get scanned kind of stuff. Yeah. They were all friends, so it was okay. Good. But uh, I would refer to myself as a monkey. I was I was one of the data sets. I was monkey two. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, because it's, right, it's like a whole established way of doing small N, but getting lots of data per participant or animal. And and there's sort of understanding that that there's certain things you can figure out that way that are mechanistic that are maybe variable across people but not so wildly that once you have three subjects or participants the principle that you've identified lines up you know it's, I mean there's papers on this it's powered like you just figured this out but you can't do epidemiology like that you can't do a cross person comparisons like each animal or person is one experiment and there's actually replication. Yeah, I, I think that's very appealing because it's like cost effective. You can do little experiments with people. You know, there's not much overhead for recruitment. You usually end up scanning people who can hold still, so you don't have to worry about that. Not representative of the population, but there's never any claim because we did three people or three monkeys, right? Like nobody goes, that's representative of all macaques, but it doesn't really matter the kind of studies people do um, or tracers or something, right? You're not going to do a thousand. That's too expensive. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then on the flip side, I think the the giant studies like KB, HCP, ABCD, and so on, um, they're super helpful. They're just totally different, right? To me, it's almost like I started thinking of it as like epidemiology with MRIs, right? Like questions like, what does lead really do to a child's brain? Okay, let's yeah. get, because you can't 
do an experiment, give kids lead, right? So it's like you get 12,000 scans and you are, oh yeah, there's a tiny effect, but it's real. So that's not good. And that's like an important question, right? Because yeah. it's not an environment that affects every kid, even if it's actually a tiny effect, let's not do that, right? You can learn a lot. It's just fundamentally different. I think the stuff I, I don't love anymore is the sort of intermediate, like 125 people, but you're looking across people for, for just something purely correlational. Yeah. That just gets very dangerous, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We get into that too. So so 15 hours per subject worth of data, everybody in the world would have access to five HCP subjects, but you had access to much more replications of that same brain. And I think that fueled a lot of really great science. Lots of neuron publications, I think, came first. Glad you and, think so. Thank you. And, <laughs> and 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 so 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 one key paper relevant to this audience uh, audience of the podcast is I think the Neuron paper, um, first authored by Deanne Green. Um, in that one, you identify motor integration zones and map them to different um, DBS targets. I think qualitatively, yeah. right? But you, yeah. you uh, the the pallidum and the thalamus. Could you summarize that what you found there, and maybe again why it was so important to have su such long data sets per per subject? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the weird things I'm still trying to wrap my head around it is like, it, it, in the end, we've been finding a lot of things in the individual specific position functional mapping data first, almost because we have just a lot more confident and confidence in what we see because we know the SNRs yeah. better. And so you see something, it's this weird thing you do subconsciously when the data are messy, you're like, I can't worry about that. It's probably noise or who knows, yeah. artifact. But then it's like, when you know it's really good, you go, you see something, you go, what, what if that's real? Like, what is that? Like, I, I'm not used to seeing that. Oh, and, and then often, like, when you later go back, it's actually in the other data, too. It was just more subtle where you just sure. weren't quite ready to write a paper about it because it seemed like, you know, you embarrass yourself because it turns out to be artifact or something. So, um, yeah, for that study, like, why the SNR is so much worse deep in the brain. That's from the coil elements. So we kind of stayed away from, you know, the standard GBS targets with functional data. Uh, because it's just much harder. And so then we had better data and we thought, okay, maybe we can take a look there. That's obviously, you know, maybe the most important part of the brain, often ignored by functional activity studies, because mm. mainly because the data are so much worse. One of the reasons. Um, yeah. So we started the cortex. Yeah. And this, yeah. What I think Scott Merrick was co first author on that one. He's called it cortical chauvinism and like neuroimaging. Like, like, this entire paper is talking about the whole brain. It's just cortex. And the analogy I've tried using, it's like you're looking at a car and you don't know it's got wheels. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. If you leave Good off point. everything that's not cortex, you have a really high chance of not totally understanding how the whole brain actually does stuff. Because you're pretty sure that stuff's important because if you don't have it, you're dead. Anyway, but it's hard to study. So, um, yeah, so we finally there, I, I would say. And then, um, you know, we noticed that um, you know, like we're trying to do winner take all, sort of like parceling it out, but it's difficult, right? And it looked like there were certain nodes that this is always hard, but we we got even higher resolution data because it could be an it, you know, it could be just a volume averaging thing, where there were really zones where those networks that in the cortex are separate really overlap a lot more. We thought maybe that's meaningful, and then really what happened was we had identified two, and um, I showed them to collaborators, including Scott Norris, who's now the head of movement disorders at WashU. And he goes, Nico, you know that's when we put the DBS leads. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, where? Like, right there? It's like, 
well, I'm just, you know, I don't know. I what's the coordinate, but like pretty much, I think that's the VIM. And I think this is where you would put it in a glow's palatus. And I was like, get out. Like, are you serious? And I got really excited because I, I mean, you know, I'm not a movement disorder specialist in Pete. It's not that big a deal. They don't have Parkinson's or essential tremor off recently. Um, don't get much DBS. So wasn't really thinking about it. And then he was, uh, I was like, I bothered him and I was like, no, no, we got to chase this down, you know, and we sort of started investigating it more and, uh, and, you know, got some neurosurgeons to weigh in to make sure they agree, which I did learn that thalamic anatomy is very contentious. Yeah. <laughs> the small spot, but very difficult. I, I was reading about it last night. I mean, I know you have a book out about that kind of stuff. Anyway, anybody want to teach me thalamic anatomy? I'm all ears. Uh, I'm fascinated. It's very difficult. So I, I, I don't have a book on, on the thalamus out. No, no, but I totally agree that, that uh, yeah, there has been a lot of even historical fights. Um, also, you know, between Hustler and Germany and uh, Irain Jones in, in the States and, to, you know, to facilitate things, call them differently and so on. Lots of um, different nomenclatures. Yeah, yeah, the, nom yeah. the nomenclature is all different. There's different atlases. You have to, like, which your favorite atlas, you know, you got an atlas, the distal atlas. You go to the West Coast, you're supposed to use the Thomas Atlas. It's yeah. Stanford. <laughs> you know? It's like, I learned you guys, like, which atlas would you like to see overlaid on our data? We have them all kind of thing. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that was, I mean, that was sort of amazing because that whole project was just almost like sort of boring thoroughness. Like, oh, we did this for Cortex. Let's do it for the deep gray as well as we possibly can. We had also done the cerebellum. Not expecting to find anything cool. That's like clinically relevant. And then, you know, I think this is why it's so important to work on a team that's as cross-disciplinary as possible because, like, I, we really, really missed it. And it's not even like I didn't know that you do VIM, DMBS, but it's, like, not at the forefront of my mind. Sure. So, like, you look at a map, you're like, okay, sounds good. Let's put it in the paper. And you'd be missing the main thing about it. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's so, you know, so important to, like, show your stuff to people who think differently, have different background. And I think that probably started uh, oh, Scott Norris and John Willie and other folks and Jared Rowland, you know, sort of like getting us into this. Because, of course, then you're like, I you're still you know, a you know, still neurologist. You want to help people. And then, of course, it becomes much more exciting to other people if you happen to have found a node that's actually a DBS target. It makes it like a thousand times more interesting, right? So, sure. um, and, and these, and these, um, these, would integrate different networks that on the cortex are quite separated, right? So both of them or one, I think I remember one was more integrative than the other. Is that, is that correct? Or Yeah, yeah. So the one, I mean, the one I think we feel the best about and I think we have a slightly different take on it. It's not, it's not different, but it's essentially that um, depending on how you parcelate the cortex when you're doing winner-take-all, it looks like you're getting all sorts of different motor regions. Mm -hmm. it, it's also starting to look like this new thing we postulated the somatocognitive action network right we hadn't parceled that one out then but once you do that it's like oh it's it's actually a lot about the connectivity to that which is interesting because nice. it is a sort of cross effect on network so it's sort of uh um it's still an integration zone but the interpretation is slightly different in the sense like it's actually because there's like a whole integration network that shows up strongly in the central thalamus um so not not wrong, just like a more detailed to the to the interpretation now. Um, Makes sense, and we, we'll get into that. So, so I think yeah. I think that the next next um, hit relevant to us. There are lots of hits, but I'll skip a few. Um, was 
even Gordon's 2021 cerebral cortex paper that postulated the striatum into small subregions, um, I think 10 different cortical areas. Um, I I think we, we have, for example, Bogdan Dragansky had a paper on postulating the striatum before you guys, but much coarser, not with the same, you know, integrity. Like, um, do, do you think the striatum is like has a representation for all the cortical nodes um, there are and, and could such maps be helpful for clinical practice or for better understanding what the structure does or what's your main take home of that paper? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, last night I was trying to learn a lot about the putame and um, I, 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 think, I think my opinions on these things are changing weekly depending on the latest thing I heard. Uh, um, you know, um, I'm having lots of debates with my buddy, Evan Gordon, you know, his office is like down the hall here yeah. about this. Um, so we have to be careful not to lean too far out the window, but I mean, I think, I think, um, I've been annoying everybody I've worked with lately because I keep bringing up the deep grace down the straight. I'm saying like, this is what we should be working on. And. And like we need better methods, like we need smaller voxels, we need better SNR. We, you know, we need to optimize our sequences for measure things to measure things down there. Um, it's almost like I feel like that's sort of I don't know, like you probably teach me stuff, but when I read about the you know, the thalamus is a relay station. Why what nature doesn't just like put stuff that costs energy. Like it does sound like what's it do? That's like such a cop out. Yeah. It was like one of the standard sentences you see like in an intro. What? Like you're just handing things off for no reason? Like what's really happening? Right? And you have so many fascinating... Yeah, I'm super fascinated lately by this idea that like what, you can have a lesion in the thalamus or somewhere and have like a positive symptom like you have chronic pain all of a sudden that wasn't there before. Yeah. But then you can stimulate near it and also make pain go away. And then whenever I add... Yeah. Yeah, and then I asked, well, I asked the EFIS guys, people, like, well, tell me what the stim parameters. Are you inhibiting or are you activating? And you should go, great question. <laughs> we think we're doing both, but nobody's really sure, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I'm just learning about that because I only have any yeah. background in EFIS. So, um, I don't know, I feel like that's where the action is right now. I agree. Well, for understanding the brain as a whole, maybe, and also for a lot of, uh, you know, neuromodulation interventions in neurology and neurosurgery and psychiatry. Um, I, th I think it seems like we got these great treatments, but when you dig into the story, it's a lot of trial and error because a lot of the models, you're like, oh, that is not the best explanation. You know, it, like it seems a little off still. Like, some, like yeah. it feels like we're not, no, we don't know everything yet, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if that is interesting, Marwan Harris, who was also a guest on the show, has a great paper on serendipity. Um, how it led to clinical treatments in in this field, and I think if you if you analyze you know how DBS came about, how lesioning surgery came about, and so on, it's it's really more about serendipity than animal models, right? So, there almost everything can be traced back to one case report or you know these these findings in humans. And so you're totally right. We we often don't have good mechanistic models yet um, for the things that work because it's so far hard to find good animal models that really lead to treatments. I think, you know, that end doesn't have big wins in neuroscience, um, very much so in cancer. So so Mike Fox and I bounce these ideas all uh, across our heads all the time these days. And 
I'm quite fascinated by this idea that that you know there's really a lot coming from human serendipity, but as a consequence, you might say that we often don't understand these things that well yet. Um, so it might make make sense to now go back to animal models and better study them, or, or with you yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I was literally thinking this morning as I was driving about, I was like, who does trace injections at WashU? Like, have, you know, like the really classical stuff that probably isn't getting a ton of funding these days. Hmm. But it's so, so solid, you know. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Next paper. If if I I went onto Wikipedia and searched for Nico Dosenbach, didn't find a page about you. Sorry, not yet, okay. but I'm sure <laughs> soon. Yeah. Um. And uh, the first hit I got was not the profile about yourself, but about self-experimentation in medicine. What did oh. you do, Nico? Oh, yeah. That, I, I came with being on Wikipedia. So I did this, we call it the pink cast study, where, um, so after we had the Midnight Scan some data, right, there was this idea that we want to do experiments, like in monkeys or rats. Um, and, um, you know, we there's still... SNR issues, right? So we got this idea that we shouldn't do something subtle. Like we need a sledgehammer. Um, and the the story behind it that I remember the origin story was like we had a meeting with the legendary Avi Snyder who's completely night night active. Like you can't find him for four p.m. Uh, so we're having a ten p.m. meeting in the at Washu in the imaging building with Avi because that's like his lunchtime. And uh, and I I I was treating some kids with pineal stroke with CMT constraint induced movement therapy. And we've been talking about like what kind of experiment we want to do and plasticity, obviously super interesting. And uh, I'm like telling people about this patient I signed up for CMT and Abby was like, Nico, that's really mean. You're doing that to kids. You should do that to yourself and we should study it. And then everybody laughed and I was like, yeah, let's do that. Pretty sure it took us the year of me a year to like clear my schedule and like plan out the whole thing. What CMTP, um, sorry. What's that? DMT is constraint induced movement therapy. So, oh, sorry. Yeah, like you, when you have a hemiplegia, you, you put the good side in a cast in kids, the idea being from usually from perineal stroke, uh, to force them to sort of rewire when you're really scientific here. Um, just some mixed evidence for it, right? It's sort of, I didn't feel bad prescribing it because, you know, it, a lot of it's like good studies hadn't been done to show that it works. And it seemed like, no harm, you know, you put kids' arms in casts all the time for also reasons, so it's very safe. Anyway, so... But you put the, the good arm in a cast, so yeah. the other arm has, you know, we, we do the same in, 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 in eye, uh, as an eye doctor, right? If, if you have a, um, yeah, got it. Okay, so, so and then Avi said you should do that to yourself. Yeah, we should study, we should get a time course, plasticity, and like, Tim Long was there, some other folks, I think maybe Adrian Gilmore can't remember exactly all. And then we was like, yep, yeah, let's do that. It took a while to plan out. Um, and we did it. It was like two weeks of, re I was still tight on budget. So we we scanned like at five in the morning because it was, it was a 90% discount. It was like a 70% discount from like five to six or 30 or something. Which I'm not a morning person. So that was sacrifice on my part. Yeah. And then we did like two weeks pre, then we did two weeks cast. We, a bunch of trial casts, you know, learn how to do it. You know, enclose the fingers so you can't cheat, kind of stuff. And then um, we did daily scan before two weeks, during two weeks, and then I think we did in the beginning a four-week tail. Um, you know, think thirty minutes rest, a bunch of other stuff every time. 
Um, and then, you know, I like to do it once to see what we get before we invest more energy. And so we analyzed my data and there was what we thought was this huge effect. For example, like decreased partial connectivity in left and right upper extremity motor, which is the classic, you know, Biswell 975 finding. Yeah. Well, like a giant reduction. I was like that R dropped by 0.23 or something. It's big, I thought. And then, then I got all excited and then we did it two more times. Turns out we did it with a better scanner then with younger people. And we scanned at night and, and one participant we essentially put the left to right upper extremity correlation to zero, like the classic FC. It's like, well, gone. And then it came back and the other one, we got it almost to zero. So way bigger result. Um, so, um, yeah, but I, I, I had to meet with the IRB like two, three times about doing this to myself. I got really lucky because one of the IRB guys, he has like an interest in self-experimentation. He told me about it. You know, Wash U has a history. Like I know um, Randy Bateman did like some self-CSF sampling for a paper that, you know, like that I'm pretty sure it was like super important for all the stuff's happening in Alzheimer's and CSF samples and serum samples and detection and stuff. And, um, you know, in the end, uh, I was a little annoyed because I don't love paperwork. They made me write like a clinical trial protocol for myself. So like at first I was like, I'm just going to do this. Make sure it's okay. And uh, I couldn't stop laughing because I like signed my own consent form where, uh, and I had something about it, how I would not force myself to continue in my study if I didn't want to. Which is like very tough. That's me. That's good. Are you sure you, you just want me to do this because it's kind of silly? And they're like, yeah. Legal said, do that. You, you sign yourself up in your own clinical study, and then you, you know, don't coerce yourself. Like, I will try not to curse myself. Um, yeah, but it, it was fine. I mean, it was hard mostly because all the scanning. Um, and then there was good advertisement, the pink, because then people come up to me and ask me. That's like a good icebreaker because people assume you broke your arm. So they're like, what's happened? It's like, funny story. I didn't break my arm. I'm doing research. And then, and then the other people we got to do it, they, they saw it and they're like, I want to do this. Like, if you want someone else to do it, remember Ashley Nielsen, who's self-identified on Twitter and everywhere. She's very proud of this. So I can say her name. Um, she was the next one. I was like, you have to be very intense. And she told me, she was like, all right, I'm tell you how intense I am. My sister just biked from San Diego or something to Alaska. Oh. I'm much more intense than her. I was like, okay, we'll do it. You can do it. <laughs> and she was actually way better than me. She, she's like, world's greatest super subject so what did your family say during these two two weeks like you couldn't i don't know did you need help at breakfast or these things no i i, I uh i mean you managed it was clear i wasn't gonna be deterred um i i the idea was i wasn't gonna like uh uh, uh like not there was not that could be anything i didn't do because i wanted to see the plasticity effect so i i i could change the diaper because my daughter was like like a year old or something 18 months then And the trick is you use the cast arm to hold her down. And then, and then you do this with one hand. I had some practice. The only thing I didn't do, like, at the time we had, like, a, one stick shift, DW, and one knot. And I decided not to drive the stick, even though I kind of tried it, you know. I was like, okay. that's not safe. But, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I automatic is fine. And then I just went to work. I remember going to clinic, and, uh, and I was really worried because I was still, like, write some scripts on paper pads sometimes, like stimulants or whatever. And actually, the nurses, they were like, Nico, your handwriting got better when I was writing with my left. And I was like, really? Because, like, literally, 
because I thought I couldn't write with my left, but it's actually I slowed down and mainly my sloppy handwriting is because I just go too fast and it's swirling. So like, yeah, we can read your scripts now. I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Not what I expected. Um, That's great. Uh, it was super fun. And I just love doing experiments because it's like, it's weird. It's like, A, it's fun. And then it's like weird. Like you get these weird insights. Like I'm almost like if somebody's doing an experiment, I'm like jealous because I'm like, I really want to know what's happening, you know? Um, so for example, the one insight I feel like I wouldn't have gotten was the whole grant. We, I wrote about it and like, whatever, like it, I thought it was going from right to left. Like you're right down and you go to left. Got it. That is not at all what this is about. Actually, like within a day or so, you realize that you actually really go through stuff with your left hand, like plenty good. Mm-hmm. It's really going from two hands to one hand. That's the big difference. Mm-hmm. And I realized that several times, but the one time I was like, you know, you, you empty the dishwasher, you like go down, you grab plate, and then one motion, you open the sink, right? Yep. You only have one hand, you pick up the plate, and now you're standing, and the, it's closed. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I need a different strategy. So like I would put the plate down, you just open all the cabinets. Then with one hand, you can do it. And then, but it's like literally like the first time you do it automatically, you realize you need a different strategy. So it was almost like, oh, like it, it's about having one hand and you can get around it, but you, you literally have to think it out sometimes. Or the other one that was almost embarrassing was a jar. Like I was trying to open a jar and I remember just like holding it and it, I'm standing, I'm like pushing against the counter. I think it was like pickles. I finally was like, oh, I got legs and like, Carried it. I sat down. I used my knees, and then you open it, and then it eats, right? But it's like it licks. the first time you yeah, yeah. think about it. So I was like, "Oh, there's cognitive overhead for all this stuff. It's just so automated normally." And then the hardest was the belt. But I figured out you use like the dresser corner, and you like, I mean, it's not pretty, but I, like the first day, it took me ten minutes to put my belt on, you know, to go to work. But then you know, with some practice. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun. I don't know if everybody's played this game to be like, well, how good could I use my left? Yeah. But then you never stick with it. That's the cast, right? Like the cast forces you, and within three days, you're like, oh yeah, my left's fine. Like, it's just it's okay. the right within a few days usually. You know. Would you re- recommend it to people to try it out? Just like that, probably not. Well, I thought it was super fun. I mean, actually, yeah. honestly, the most annoying thing was like, it's annoying to sleep with a cast on. So I think I had some sleep problems the first few nights because it's mm-hmm. like. Right, like where do I put it? Do you put the pillow on top? And that's mainly so. So it's really, really very creative um, study as as all of yours, and and you know very cool, very insightful. It's so funny to to hear that you had an IRB. I mean, I now now thinking of it, of obviously you had one, but but I think if you go to that list on Wikipedia, most of the people do self experimentation because they don't. Right? I think I I just skimmed through it, and there was one like the first hard cut feature apparently was done in self-experimentation on, you know, himself, then went on to get the Nobel Prize. So so there are these, um, you know, other examples where people do it more or less because they can't do it any other way. Um, and so, so yeah, super interesting. So, all right. Uh, but um, I think that the next one, um, uh, following these series of neuron papers, you had two nature papers in, in succeeding years, 2022 and 2023, that is unusual. Congratulations for an fMRI researcher. So, is there a recipe? What's what's your what's your secret sauce to get into with these high impact paper uh, journals? How lucky are you getting lucky? And that nah, come on. No, oh, seriously. And also, you know, working with really good people. Um, I did. It's uh, it, it 
we have real teamwork and people who are very, very good at stuff already, which usually means that like further along in their career are still willing to put up with you. You can just do more complicated, bigger things. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. And ADHD, that last one was because ADHD helps because I think my dopamine reward curve is set up in a way where it like falls off very steeply. So I really struggle focusing on things that I think it's not that exciting, which then it just automatically forces your energy towards the stuff that is exciting. So it's kind of just like a like hunter and gatherer versus like big game hunting. It's not actually you're probably not actually doing more for science. You're just being selfish and like right like gambling on the big stuff working out kind of, um, which is almost like I've tried to will myself not to do that. And it seems like I can't not. That, that's very interesting <laughs> thing. Your ADHD, um, is, is helping you essentially focus on the, on the few things that, that keep your attention span up, but you could also take it the other way around that publishing in nature usually takes ages, right? And it's a slow process. So, so keeping, you know, is it, wouldn't you also be for the quick wins? With ADHD, ADHD, so you know to yeah, that's, I've, I've, there, yeah, I've been wondering about this because you know the folks I work with, there seems to be this difference where there's a lot of people who like to start things and then at the end, the last ten percent, they just can't even deal with it anymore. I have this weird thing where I'm the opposite way, where like once I see that it's about finished, I I, I can like the reward is getting closer, the future discounting is getting diminished. And maybe this is growing up where I grew up, like this idea of like doing something that's really clean, like really awesome. Like even if it doesn't have to be, I grew up with that being like a good in itself. I remember my grandpa always built his own stuff. He was like a real Swabian. He would like twisty tie and color coordinate the wires in the wall. And I was like his helper. And I later realized like you don't have to do that. But like in his mind, that's how you do it right. And even if yeah. somebody can't see it, like somebody's going to open that wall in 50 years and be like, ooh. Those are really nice wires. You know, they're all like tied together, going the same way. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. could just toss them in there. So I, I feel like so you know, the one thing I picked up in Southwest Germany that stuck with me. So it's like, oh, this is really like I'd rather go over something we've gone over before just to make it slightly better. If I think it's really great, then like start like a whole new okay thing. But then it hurts your. Like, I don't like that the NIH counts like total numbers of papers because that, that you can't do well on that one. And always like polish everything one more time um so makes sense yeah i can i can really relate to that i think um, on a on a lowest a smaller scale for the higher impact papers we've published in my lab once we got into the revision phase and it was looked positive then yeah you know i we, we usually berserk and go all in and everything yeah. kind of pitches in and we kind of try to make the best paper we can because we then it's you know the reward as you say there's no delayed discounting anymore you kind yeah. of know it's going to get going to get in but then you can really make it even, you know, maybe bump it up a little bit. So it's like I, I can very much understand that. Um, you 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 mentioned like deciding to go into to nature. Um, when Mike Oaken interviewed you, you mentioned that you decided to send the latest one to to nature based on a Twitter thread by Eden Gordon. Um, yeah. Following publications of the preprint, and he called it the crowdsourcing impact across the nerds. Um, have you have you done that? Yeah. Uh, more often, like using essentially Twitter feedback to decide where to publish. Yeah, I'm trying to do that now because at these things, you're there's sort of theory of mind. It's like you obviously think it's interesting, but impact is assessed by the rest of the community is like how interesting yeah. other people find it. 
and things like social media will essentially tell you, right? Yeah. So then it's like, and sometimes you you like, oh, I don't think that's that interesting, and then somebody puts a tweet out and everybody responds. They're like, oh, okay, people do care. Yeah. They like this. This is good to know. <laughs> um, you know, you, I mean, like even the reviews. I feel like if you have some contentious, on average, the what people say on Twitter matches pretty well, which is what your reviewers will say. I mean, not perfectly. Twitter is, I think, angled towards younger people and more like computational people slightly. Yeah. Uh, but on average, it, so so that's like if you put a preprint up and you have a bunch of responses, don't ignore it. Like you just got your first round of reviews. Like you might want to address it, right? You might yeah. disagree, but like the other reviewers, the ones, the anonymous ones, or not always, but mostly, yeah. they'll probably say the same stuff. You know, so it's kind of kind of cool. Um, so you usually put in a delay between the preprint and the actual submission because we usually do for same day um but well that's but my new that's my new theory were... that like you 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 should wait right because you you do a lot of twitter you're good at it you said to get all your comments in 48 hours there seems to be it goes around the world twice the time zone yeah. and then it's kind of like then it's just a trickle so after 48 hours you and then if you get a bunch of comments you should look at them and be like are any of these something we can fix before we submit the paper and depends on the story, but sometimes you're like, yeah, oh, like like everybody hates this word, or like everybody yeah. really likes this figure that's in the supplement. They're like, oh, I should put it in the paper, like stuff like that. It's like yeah. free. I I just like that, you know. Long. Um, and generally, from your experience publishing in Nature, it is I I assume a tedious process. Can you report a bit on like Do you like it? Are you usually is there usually a moment where you say, oh, this isn't worth it? And then in the end, of course, it's worth it once it's out. Or is it always, has it been smooth for you so far? Well, I think I like it. Now, I don't have to usually do the most tedious stuff yeah. myself, but I, I, I kind of like it. Um, and it's, um, you know, there's a lot of, as you know, neuroimage walkout, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot happening there. You know, I don't know. But the nature's pretty cool. But like the people that like work at nature, they're like really good at their jobs. Like they, yeah. they really care. It's almost like, like you have like an external conscientiousness support system where, where like stuff that you would even let go. They're like, no, no, no. Yeah, fix that. Yeah, it's like yeah. move it to the left. Look, you need a p value there. Another p value. I know you have two thousand p values, but you need another one. And it's like, it's kind of cool. So if you like making it like really pretty and like, like thorough, yeah, yeah, as thorough as you possibly can, then then you get a lot of support, right? Yeah, which is different from if the, all the editors are volunteer, like right. If you're running a lab, you can't do that. But if there's people that that's their job, they get they're really good at it, and then it gets even better. So I actually like that. Um, Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. And so so let's talk about these two um, a, a little bit, and and maybe the first one. Um, first, brain-wide association study. We, we can keep that brief. It's not so key to this podcast, but what is the study about and, and why was there also a storm of maybe misled feedback or, or around it or, or you know, a, a storm of reactions? I, I, yeah. I don't think it was a negative storm, but it was a lot of interest And in what is the paper? What is it not? How did people react? Yeah, BWAS, brain-wide association study, right, it's essentially... It, it's a thing that's well known in other fields that's happened repeatedly in what I would call population science, human population science, right? It's happened in genomics. 
GWAS, yeah. it's happened in essentially medical epidemiology, right? Um, you know, associations, things that aren't in a clinical trial, right? The first blind, double blind, placebo controlled clinical trial that powerful. But then if you're doing these, oh, Mediterranean diet, you know, you do a small sample, it always looks great. And then you do a study and like, yeah, that didn't pan out, right? When Ioannidis has written about this, he's got that inflammatory paper. It's like, why well, almost all research findings are wrong. I'm paraphrasing the title. I can't, I don't yeah. have it memorized. And it's always the same thing where, right, if you have publication bias, which we do, towards positive and significant findings, yeah, right, then if lots of people do something, the one by chance that was significant will get published. Yeah. And then it happens a bunch of times. You do a meta analysis. Now you've got a bunch of, Many small studies, right? Then, like the meta analysis is positive too, but really, if you then go and do one giant trial with a hundred thousand patients, it's not the effect size is zero. I mean, this has happened for some stuff like in fish oil and stuff. They did it, and it's like, oh, the whole effect went away. It's, but it's the winner's curse or underpowered correlations paradox or whatever you want to call it. The statisticians all understand it. Um, it's happened in GWAS like 10, 15 years ago, where you get these single gene, small and association studies, and they just didn't hold up. And now GBOS samples, they're like in the 5 million plus range now, right? Because um, the really, right, if you're studying a population, which is totally different from three monkeys, we did an experiment and get lots of data. It's like cross people, no experiment, just correlations. It gets really tricky and you need giant samples to be sure. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, Scott Merrick and Brendan Terva Clements, they, you know, they they're not by training, but so hobbyist statisticians are, you know, good as you can get without having a PhD in statistics. And they started looking when the bigger, and the crazy thing is, right, you need to know the effect size, the real effect size, which the published effect size is when all the studies are small are essentially inflated. That's what happened. Because yeah. people want to, they don't publish yeah. negative studies. Yeah. Right? They just don't. And, that, and not at the same frequency yet. Yeah. Right? And so, so then you think, oh yeah, these are big effect sizes, and then you get a giant sample and you redo it, and you're like, oh, that effect size is way smaller than anything that's been published on the same question. And then you know Scott and Brendan were like, ouchies, and um, it was kind of funny because it's almost like your level of statistical background predicted how sort of surprised you were by this, you know. So the hardcore statisticians were like, well, yeah, of course you didn't know that, like, and then the imaging people would be like, what? No, like that can't be, you know. Um, so you, you, what you found before we go into that? Uh, sorry, I think you need around two hundred thousand brains. So is is that correct? Or no, no, no it's not that bad. I mean, how is it? The t the title of the article has like thousands. Yeah, I th th there's a lot of which I stand by that. Um, uh, the, the trickiness is, you know, in retrospect you can pick out your very largest affiliation, right? And and sort of like look at when you have all the data and be like, well, this one was real. And that's fine, right? But it's different as like, it's different than prospectively having an underpowered sample, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty, and picking out whatever is the biggest, like that's almost, it's like the winner's curse. By definition, your biggest effect size in a small sample is wrong, mm. right? Because of sampling bias, yeah. right? And so you, you should, you can't, it's like overfit. Like you can't just publish your biggest effect. Even if it holds up, it's for sure inflated, right? And that's just, 
you know, the, the hardcore statisticians are like, that's just like math. Like, why are you so upset about that? <laughs> um, so, and then the, the, I think the biggest problem was that people, this is very specific to cross-sectional correlation population-based studies. If you go, as you know, and someone has a stroke, right? The brain behavior correlation where you have a stroke in occipital cortex is like perfect. Yeah. You now have a field cut. Only the like, yeah, no, you, you don't, don't even need, need you don't even need five. Usually, right? I mean, like my favorite example is always patient HM where in the fifties yeah. he had a bilateral medial temporal lobe resection for intractable epilepsy, he could no longer make memories. Every single physician went, let's never do that again. That's a perfect effect size. But yeah. happens once and nobody goes, I'm not convinced. Maybe that was a fluke. No. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's right? causal intervention. Yes. You know, perfect timing. And like, you know, the timing, I mean, and, and you know, yeah. Yeah. Or like you put a DVS electrode in, somebody has tremor, you turn it on, the tremor is gone, you turn it off, the tremor comes back. It's, you don't need you don't to do that know. a thousand yeah. times. Like, yeah. no, you, usually one, maybe two. And fun fact, like, oh, that works, you know. Fun fact, Günther Deutschler, who's, who's yeah. kind of established DBS with others, um, was a prominent figure, and he's a tremor guy. He said, says that the the evidence we have for tremor to work, like on a on a you know study level, is not great. So DBS for tremor has essentially never been proven with the usual class, whatever evidence that you would need, um, as, as as we did for Parkinson's. But I think nobody doubts it. You know, we see it, we switch it on. So so it's yeah, it's funny. Um, so, so I sometimes, I sometimes may, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but but if I want to put the brain-wide association study idea in, mm -hmm. into an analogy, what I sometimes picture is, you know, you take random pictures throughout the day of people, of their faces, and then, um, you know, maybe you can find an association whether they are smiling and then have depression or not, you know, uh, or not based on that, right? That's a bit of the level of what we sometimes do it's a random shot during the day, you know, at some activity. If you have enough N, the people that are smiling have less depression, but you need a ton of N, right? You, you have lots of people that, that wouldn't smile or in, it's, still don't have a depression. Um, but if your N is big enough, you might at some point find the correlation between them smiling and having depression or not having depression. Is, is, is that a bit what, what people do if they do, let's say, a resting state scan, cross-sectional, and then want to classify if somebody has schizophrenia or not. Is that a good comparison there? I, I like that one. Yeah. I mean, the Scott Merrick and Brendan, they've worked on on uh, on some good examples, right? So for example, the correlation between height and weight in humans is 0.4. Height and weight, most people would sort of in your head is like, oh, that's a strong correlation, mm -hmm. right? And actually, there's a great paper where people just go through like the correlations in nature. And when you read it, you're like, oh, they're all much smaller than I thought, right? Because if, if you had asked me, like, what's the height? Mommy, ah, 0.7 maybe? I don't know. This is point four, but that's actually in biology a huge correlation. You sample ten people, like you could get ten people that are really heavy and not tall, and vice versa, right? So, so, and that's an ultra strong correlation, right? So, like, like a lot of the stuff people were doing with BWAS, it was essentially assuming that you're looking at correlations that are like height and weight, like point four, and then you can get fifty, a hundred people. That's actually not unreasonable. It turns out they're mostly like point oh four. Uh, and yeah. you know, max out at like 0.15 maybe, and 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 so as soon as you do that, then it's like, oh, we need multiple orders of magnitudes larger samples now to have the same to be powered. Um, and in retrospect, it's kind of like, but again, I I was participating in this. It, it's like, why would we think that all these noisy measures have a correlation like height and weight? But we did, yeah, <laughs> included right, and then it's sort of 
I mean, it's, but it's, it's this weird thing. That's why we've been calling it a paradox or a curse because it's like, it's published, it's peer reviewed. It has a P value. Mm. It's so anathema to be like, oh, it's probably wrong. Like you have to be kind of like quite the contrarian to be like, yeah. Oh yeah, but that no, that's definitely wrong because you know publication bias and their samples too small, and you got mm-hmm. that by chance, and you know th- th- it really helped me. It's like weird. It's like you got to zoom out beyond what you're doing, right? So when we were arguing about this on Twitter or in person, people would be like, "Well, but I don't do that." And I was like, "No, no." Think about it. It's like there's ten, twenty, a hundred groups around the world doing the same experiment because it just makes sense. The same analysis. Yeah. You know, at point five five, if it's a hundred groups around the world, five of them will have a significant effect they're the ones that get published published yeah yeah it, it's not just you there's lots of people out there yeah. you know and then and then the, it gets weirder where i know i've done this where it's the reanalyses which is so subconscious right like the overfitting nobody goes i'm going to overfit this data you go oh oh yeah i did it wrong i could yeah, yeah, i, I should have done gsr i should yeah i did it wrong let me do it again but right? it's like you always do that when you don't get the result. And then it's the stopping rule where like when you get it, you're like, you stop. I didn't yeah. do it wrong. Not now we published, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's like subconscious. It's like almost impossible. I mean, there's a great paper by Gail Varroqua and team where they had this ASD data said, I don't know if you've seen it, where like literally they like held it back. Like nobody had seen part of the data. And then they gave it to a bunch of great quant- quantitative machine learning groups. And they were like, do your best. And they even had a saying where like, how long you had with the data and it's like send us your code and we're going to run it and you never get to see the data and essentially um the longer a group got to keep that like, keep working on it yeah on the data that nobody had ever seen so there was no peaking possible because yeah. they literally not released it they had it on a vault the worst that the transfer got so they of course got better on what they had with the yeah, cross validation sure. But then when you when you transfer, it's literally like, yeah, when we sort of yanked it earlier, right? Because you just, you're like, oh, no, let me do it again. I had this new idea for denoising. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you might, but it's, you're also overfitting, like, to this specific to this, data that yeah. you have in hand. It's almost like human nature. It's, it's really strange. Um, Absolutely. So what what's the conclusion of this? So, so I think one could be, you know, we just need higher end, right? But that's a costly one, right? That's maybe not a practical one. The, the other one, not for everything, at least. The other one is you could also conclude, okay, if we need such a big N to show something, the effect is so small that it's rarely going to you know, matter. I think I, yeah. I even had a, a small argument or like an exchange with you on, on, on Twitter on that. You know, Is that even something we, we, we care enough about to scan then thousand brains to, to answer the question? The third could be let's rather go to causal stuff as you did with tasks or with you know um, interventions than... A fourth option, I think that Julian, who who, who you met in um, in Florida, once mentioned, could be, okay, we change the public publishing system, you find something, and then then you get the funding to do it again, right, to replicate it, and only then you publish, right? Something like that. Do you have thoughts on what's the best conclusion to draw from this? Because the answer can't be just higher end for everything, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think higher end isn't terrible. Here's... I think it's not the only answer, but I think it's not terrible because, I mean, genomics is doing it, right? Like they're really getting bigger, bigger samples now. Their cost drop-offs compared to MRI, so every year, how much cheaper it's getting to, to sequence things. is, is MRI is nowhere close. I'm, I'm not tired of show by MRI. It's sort of not dropping in price much at all. I have some ideas. But, but so it's, it's doable. And, you know, the costs are high, but, like, 
building rockets is expensive too and you know aircraft carriers and stuff that humanity wastes a lot of money on so it's not like possible like it's sort of a priorities thing right i do think that there's sort of almost like epidemiology as it relates to the brain that's probably how you're gonna do it because you can pick up and you can pick up these small effects like i think katarina grattan came up with this one i like it's like lead poisoning right like i'm the child neurologist that's a big thing like make no kitchen of lead poisoning so you have think about it screen for it send people out to the house to eradicate it change change your life actually if you look at the effects of that not, unless it's sort of acute actually tiny effect but like when it used to be that gasoline had lead in it and all the kids were breathing it like for humanity the sum total it's not like parkinson's not everybody like the way all the kids have lead in their brain that'd be terrible right so like knowing these kinds of things but it's almost it's not medicine it's epidemiology kind of to me right because it's like the intervention isn't like it's like we got to change the gasoline laws everywhere kind of thing everybody breathes the same air but i think that's important stuff and you can get a tiny effect reliably with a giant sample that may matter on a global scale right i think these you know no i i think that matters i'm too lazy to want to do that all the time because you have to spend so much time and money collate so much data all the you know it's almost like yeah, they're like they're like smaller and like put electrodes somewhere stimulated or you know that kind of stuff. It's, it's more fun and like you don't have to Bigger have effect this. sizes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, essentially, yeah, like the big effect sizes, and um, yeah, I think experiments, I think interventional stuff, I think working with neurosurgeon, you know, who, I mean, I feel like that's the ultimate sort of. It's even more than a stroke because it's like planned sometimes. You, you know what I mean? Like a stroke. Yeah. yeah like, you're not controlling it and you don't want it to happen, but it's like, you're going to put an electrode in or do a resection. Like that's wow. You know, but isn't yeah. it? That's like the best experiment. Um, and then yeah, publishing, changing how everything works. When I was younger, I, that was like something that would come in my head, you know, it was like the world and politics. And now I'm just like, yeah, we won't I have change no idea. Yeah. I have no idea how to do that. Like, I'm, <laughs> it's like yeah, that would be yeah. nice. Like, how do we do? I don't know how anyone does that. You know, it seems hard. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense. All right, let, let's talk about the second um, paper in Nature this year, um, which I think is, might, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that might be your biggest hit yet. Um, you, you discovered a new network and you refined Penfield's homunculus. Um, is it possible to summarize the paper somehow? Sure, uh, I'll try. I Hopefully I don't go back too far. I mean, it's, it's again, the, uh, what we call precision social mapping approach. We had gotten even better data and... It was one of those, it was definitely one of those that we've been seeing it for a while, like I would say two years. This weird thing that didn't make sense to me in heaven. But it's like, it's so weird. It's like, you can't think about it. It's like hurts your head. You're like, I've got work to do, kind of, you know? And then it was almost like, kept cropping up. And then one day, I, I was like, Evan, somebody should figure this out. Like, I, I think in the grad students and the postdocs, I would offer it, like I would give them like, oh, do you want to do this? And nobody took it. And then at one point, I think Evan was like, came after a meeting. I was like, you know, Nico, like, I want to do it. I was like, well, you're an assistant professor. I, like, I know. I was like, maybe we could do it together, you know, and, and I could help more than I sometimes do. And, you know, maybe this, maybe, maybe this needs to be done. And the weird thing was, right, that you have really good data and you just run like resting state function connectivity seed maps down the central gyrus, sulcus, precentral you 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 get like hand like foot hand mouse 
strongly connected to the opposite hemisphere, so the classic visual finding. Yeah. And then in between there are these regions where like they connect to each other, like a we call it the three spots or dots or chain of islands for a while. That sounded too weird though. Um where where I was like, okay, that's weird because that's not the classic visual finding. And it's like, why is that? Right. And at first you were like, well, maybe it's like body parts that work together. I'm like, you know, but like your arm and your leg work together all the time too. Like called walking, whatever you do. It's like, and they're not connected. So there's something else going on. And um and um I don't know what it was. I think, I think it was just the data were so clean and we kept seeing it. That I was like, I believe the data now, which is I used mm-hmm. to not believe it. And then once you make the decision to be like, we have to chase this down. I remember, I mean, I have it right here. Super cortex of man. And, you know, Penfield Rasmussen, you know, yeah. I, I, I got like really interested because like pretty quickly it was like, I mean, I mean, I were like, what we're seeing in the classic Penfield Markles, they can't both be true, mm-hmm. right? And we started going down this road, and then, of course, I got the original data and started looking at it, and I was like, oh, these data are not that clean. Like, it's like the story is really good. And the, data. Yeah, the yeah. source data yeah. are, like, a mess, you know? Yeah. And uh, and then you gain a little bit of confidence, and, you know, people were just sort of like, can you show it in other subjects? We're like, sure. Can you show it in group average data? turns out, we, we only really thought we saw it in the individual-specific data. But I think in retrospect, because we were just more confident, we went back to the group average data. If you threshold it right, it's there. Yeah. It's just, we had, like, it's this weird thing. Where it's like you see it, but you didn't perceive it. It just kind I of, because it I think I told sense, you that, you know? that, that Mike yeah. Fox saw it too. You called it the bird eyes, and you mentioned Thomas Yeo saw them, yeah. the spots too. So these are spots that separate the hand, leg, and arm, um, uh, sorry, hand, uh, leg and, and trunk regions of the homunculus and and they they interdigitate and they connect differently right so so yeah. that's the the main finding i think but then you replicated that in tons of data sets how many yeah yeah main, main wait, wait, and i think we got all the big group average data sets and it's there you know and then we got like we got macaque data and it's kind of there i mean it's macaques they're not humans but you could see it you know yeah. um we got like different ages it's not there in a newborn which is interesting to me but it's there in a one-year-old um and then i would say it's just the, the big breakthrough was kind of it was like stuff i'd done for my phd working on this network we then called the single purple network which we thought was an executive control network uh, like the stuff on the pink cast that already made me think that that network is more motor than i would used to want to admit because i used to you're movement disorders neurologist, but I used to think cognition was cooler than movement. So I was like, it's not a movement network. That's boring. It's executive control. So the cast data had already suggested that it actually had these motor control functions. And so then I was like, Evan, what happens if you put a seed in that one of these nodes? Then we started calling them inter-effector nodes for the effectors, foot, hand, and mouse. And this is the nice thing, you know, just expertise with maps. I love maps. You're like, that's the single purple network if you put it there, right? I was like, whoa. And that was sort of like, I think Evan and I looked at it, I was like, I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, it's just like for the first time we potentially had an explanation. Like, it's doing what I would call action control, right? And mm-hmm. and then sort of started investigating that. And a lot of it was like reading. Like, Mike Graziano had a 2002 macaque stimulation paper that essentially said this already. Great paper. He followed up with even wrote a book that is here. Right. But, yeah. and he's an extremely eloquent, brilliant writer, has written actual novels that are bestsellers, get kind of ignored because it's like, 
I was in grad school when this went down. I remember somebody going like, oh, don't learn homunculus. It's no longer true. It was like, they were still teaching the homunculus. Yeah. And then you find other work, you know, um, Peter Strick, Angela Sirigu from like human stuff. You know, they're all like, you know, it's not that straightforward. And then the, the, the non-human primate folks that had been doing more careful mapping and like our markers and stuff, they had also found stuff that didn't fit, but it was weird. I mean, in, in retrospect, I was like, the homunculus story is, is like a brilliant story. I mean, the story is really good and keeps getting retold and is in a textbook. Yeah. It's an uphill battle for like boring old data that's confusing to dislodge it. Um, I don't know if we achieved that, but we we tried. And it's like we need a competing story, right? But but it's hard to compete. I mean, humans seem to want to anthropomorphize everything. So to be like this <laughs> little man or little person in your brain, it's like so yeah. healing, right? Yeah. Like the truth is not nearly as intuitive, and so harder to, yeah, to sell. Although, although I I would say you know that that maybe that the homunculus, in a very rough sense, still holds true, and maybe it was never implied that it actually is a continuum. Maybe it was. I I don't know. I think there was this answer by the Dietrichson lab that that said that. But I think what one other change you made, except putting essentially gaps into. The homunculus was also that you reordered each zone and, and showed that it's concentric. I think that's even to me more important, in a way more important, right? Um, because you could you could interpret the Penfield map as simply like simplifying things, right? Yeah. It still holds true, roughly arms here, foots here, and so on. Yeah. Um, but then what you did on top of that is is that you showed that, for example, in the mouth area, that the tongue is in the middle and then it goes out concentric shapes which i think is very very interesting too yeah absolutely i mean that honestly that was sort of we didn't catch that right away and then we we started um focusing on task data and and doing a lot of really simple motor yeah. tasks over and over again and it was once we started plotting those you know that that's all of a sudden rosalind chauvin who works with me she, she i think she might be the first ones to notice that she plotted this sort of differently and she was like Things are concentric circles. I remember my first response being like, what? No. And then you look <laughs> at it and you're like, ooh, it might be. And then, of course, you know, I think the big one there was, I think we talked to Peter Strick, who is like a library of neuroanatomy. And so he was like, well, yeah, there's this paper from 1970, whatever. Belt sends it to us. And, and sure enough, you know, it, it's not imaging. It's some monkey species. And you see sort of similar things. And you're like, Oh wait, this is actually you know this this is there, and then we thought about other parts of the brain where there are these kinds of concentric you know in the visual stream or whatever these concentric organizations. So I'm like, that's not totally crazy. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think talking with Peter Strick a lot about this really helped because he really knows the motor system and he has a different take on it. So yeah. we had a lot of negotiations essentially where we had to reconcile what we had and what he had and come to this consensus that, that it could all be fit together but it's it, it the, the it's not the homunculus is too simple um in retrospect it, this is the weird thing in retrospect i'm like yeah of course not because your trunk is terrible like don't do anything super fast you know like this this is yeah, so yeah. different you, you know it's like i honestly think that if you look at some of the neurosurgical stuff i think the somatosensory one is maybe makes much more sense and it's easier to get and it's like more symmetric relatively and then it's sort of like the danger of over extrapolating when you have a really nice pattern you know um so but it's funny isn't it that that sometimes i feel like our field 
forgets history quite well, right? So there seems to be this 30-year cycle of reef, like finding stuff that has been shown 30 years ago when, you know, the, the last generation died and everybody forgot about it. Um, that happens. But then also with something like the homunculus that just sticks, it is then very hard to, you know, you accept it as a truth in a way, right? People think, oh, this is so established. This is so old. You know, we've been telling that for ages. Can't be wrong. So there are maybe these these two effects of, of historical findings and you had to probably convince yourself first than others um, second to, to to think about, okay, taking that down or like not taking it down, but extending it and refining it. Um, oh, absolutely. I think yeah. you're onto something. It, it seems like historic, it's like historical, it's a minute take all. So unfortunately, many cool things get completely lost. Yeah. And then a handful of things become truth and some of them didn't deserve it, you know? Yeah. And then it's hard to find it, right? Because it's like, you just have to, I, the textbook doesn't have any original data and it doesn't yeah. even have an explanation of how they did that in 1935 or whenever, yeah. which the methods, you know, they didn't have that much technology. And and so, I mean, I remember like I, I wanted the original and then like buying it on eBay, I think it cost like a thousand dollars and I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then I went to the library and the library didn't have a copy for some weird reason. Mm. And I finally found some place in Spain that sold it at a reasonable price to get the book to look at the original stuff. I mean, it wasn't hard, but like it, it's the yeah. kind of thing where if you, you like have five minutes, you're going to give up because you can't just download it from your sure. computer. And, uh, and, um, but then, yeah, it's, uh, it's weird. And then you have to be a little insane to be, uh, pencils wrong. Right. I mean, the, yeah. the first, the first time I was like, like Evan and I, were yeah. admitting it to, like, I'm probably whispering, it's like, pencils wrong. I was like, like, yeah. It's not that anybody hears us just yet, you know, but it's out. It would be a bit like, like the, the winner, I like the winner takes all. So Bro- Broadman's map is maybe in another one where, where it's, it's a good map, I, I guess, but, you know, he was a student of the folks who were mm-hmm. in these massive anatomists and they had really great Milo, Milo uh, architectural maps that might be even better. And then there was, there were a lot of competing maps. So I, I wonder why in the end Broadman's made the cut, right? Uh, yeah. It seems like, yeah. Um, I mean, I, to, I, yeah. here, here's this thought experiment. I, I've done this a bunch. So, you know, I believe in functional areas. I think they're real. I come from like neuroscience. I know there's some computational people who think those are just ideas. I disagree. But I also think there's almost a 100% chance that Broadman snaps wrong. Yeah. It's, it's over 100 plus years old. I mean, show me one thing in biology that's that ancient that it, that that not couldn't be updated right it's almost impossible exactly so 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 maybe not yeah. wrong but but yeah. but not perfect so yeah not i mean it's probably based on on a few brains maybe isn't just one brain even i'm not one sure brain. Yeah. it's one brain yeah. yeah so 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 that alone you know tells a lot and yeah totally agree. Then, so, i mean i have yeah. a question because it's like i feel like it seems like broadman yeah captured the market did a good job and it hasn't been redone much which on the one hand right like imagine you wrote a grant for the NIH. You're like, I'm just going to redo Broadman. I don't think you'd yeah. get a great score because that would be like, yawn, like, how is that going to help patients? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's almost like, that might be quite there useful, is, there you is, know? There is the, the glass of oscillation, right? Got into nature. Um, That That is maybe the, the new version of it. And then I think at the same time, much less known um, was, uh, you know, a, 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 a there, there was an attempt to merge the Broadman's pseudo-architectonical with the 
um, forked my yellow architectonical maps and try, try to, you know, um, segregate them together by a Neuvenhuis, who is, who is a famous anatomist, um, quite old already, um, 95 or so, but he still does these things. And he published that in the same year than, than Matt Glasser. They found exactly the same number of parcels. That's funny um, coincidence. Um, but I think different maps, right? So, so I don't know, but, but, but there is, yeah, I don't know. You could try, um, but it's probably not great for grants. You're right. Nobody would think we need this. Like I, I want someone to do it, but I don't yeah. want to write a grant about it because I'm almost certain it's going to get viciously rejected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, and I agree like there's imaging stuff, but I'm literally thinking like literally histology. Yeah. 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 Like real old school, but you know, like sort of maybe fancier versions of that, right? Because I'm sure yeah. they got new stains and molecular stuff. Yeah. And, um, I guess may- maybe Katrin Amund's work in, in Jülich, they might be the only, and that's actually the folks' um, original birthplace uh, or like, no, where, where they where they were last. And I think uh, there's a lineage to be drawn to to Katrin Amund's now and Carl Sillis before her. Um, they are doing big brain, right? They're, I think, now creating one micron brains. Um, it's not really recreating Broadman, but but at least they are doing this at the high high volume and uh, with a lot yeah. of funding there in Germany. I have one guest question um, that Mike Fox recorded, and stupid me, I, I somehow <laughs> lost the recording. Really sorry okay. about that. Because that's my message. Yeah, yeah, messages app deleted them after two minutes. Didn't know that. Anyways, um, he wanted to know uh, what do you think would happen if you would stimulate the scan network, so your internal vector oh. network, uh, versus other areas in motor cortex? Well, in terms of. Trick. Therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's a trick question because I feel like he's already done it. Um, so if you guys did it, you know, we didn't. So let, let me know. Um, okay, so we kind of tried this, but not super well with TMS, and and you know, you can get the difficult TMS over the selective specific regions. We were getting that, and then we didn't try it for too long. But if I was the subject, we would try to stimulate over the scan nodes. Mine registered. Oh, you did? Yeah, to to the you know navigation system for the TMS, and not not super surprisingly, I mean this was one of the hypotheses why why this didn't show up in Penfield stuff is like we weren't getting movements, right? Richie, Penfield didn't record when nothing happened, and so then you have a map of the positives and not the negatives. Like I feel like if they had just mapped, but the map of what happened when nothing happened in motor strip. They might have already been like, oh, there's these other spots where most of the time nothing happens, right? Yeah. It's all stochastic. Um, the one that, and this is not real data, I shouldn't be talking about it, but I can't stop myself, was like at some point you're like, okay, maybe there's negative effects, right? Because Penfield actually, I think the most inferior scan node is maybe what Penfield tried to call M2 and it didn't catch on actually. His SMA caught on, his homophist, because um, he was getting a lot of either no movement or actually speech inhibition there. Mm. Um and um and so we tried it on me like reading and it was this weird thing where like my reading would hang up. But it was like this is why I like doing experiments. Cause it was like if somebody asked me like why did you stop reading? It it was like Yeah, I don't know. Like I shouldn't have, right? Like it's right. I don't know if you've been TMS, but like when your finger moves and it's like you don't feel like you moved it. It's kind of weird, you know. Yeah. So, so it it, it was kind of like that in the sense of like, oh, it, 
and then but you but but it was like we did it wasn't scientific because we were just messing around yeah. so we didn't really record it or anything still on the to-do list to do that or to do it with with stimulation i mean i think you probably have some interesting right because because the weird thing about this network is that it seems to have this grab bag of functions that if you believe in the labels of those functions as like true entities you're like oh that's weird this network does all this stuff but those functions they're just words kind of right like mm. i mean like executive control like that's just a concept yeah like we, we but if you sort of do buzaki's thing you go from the brain from inside out you go there's this network what's it for you know we think it's for this but i mean and i think strick agrees like we think that's older than effector-specific M1, that effector-specific M1 comes in primate evolution to yeah. have these specialized effectors uh, and that there was an like, older system yeah. yeah, older system that was like more holistic that in humans has become exapted to something more abstract. Yeah. Kind of when nature does these weird things, it's, it's not designed. So, you know, um, and so even though it has this fancy tie-in into what one could call higher order part of control function, it's almost like running on older hardware circuitry, mm. maybe compared to effector specific. Um, and so, uh, I think you would have some interesting effects, um, for the things that go into being active that I didn't used to think about. So like arousal, so epilepsy, uh, potentially maybe the deep nodes like CM, like, cause the first thing that happens if you're going to do something is you exit the default mode and arouse, right? Yeah. Something's doing that in the brain. Pain, which initially weirded me out, is like this makes no sense that I realized that like pain is the OG feedback signal when you're doing stuff, right? Like it's like, yeah, it's nice that like I touched here, but like if something hurts, that was bad behavior. That you really you just need stop to... generally, yeah, yeah. That needs to be quick. Uh, yeah, that that like pain, right? It's like you don't want to be hurting when you're doing things that you're doing it wrong, right? So I was like, oh, that's like really valuable, what I would call action feedback. Um, and then the other ones would, of course, be that Peter Strick put us onto this, anything. And, there, you know, there's the mouse paper from Diceroth about the insula and the heart, right? Mm. Um, there's some other human stuff. So so this idea that, like, you actually have top-down and bottom-up stuff going to your organs. Yeah. Um, you know, like the famous Strick tracing paper, um, supplementary motor regions and primary motor regions go in the adrenal medulla. That used to be like, I was like, I used to take, what? And now I'm like, oh no, it's about action, right? It's like sympathetic drive. It's about fight or flight versus rest and digest, right? Like, like, like if you're going to do something in the real world, like, like, what, what did, you know, like, like Peter Strick taught us is like, you know, like when you do something, you know, like you, you like, hence your pelvic muscles, the insides don't fall out. Like you adjust your breathing to what you're gonna do. You don't even think about it. These are all part of like it like there are these there are these physiological and whole body things that go with doing something. When you do a task fMRI, you're just making people tap their finger, that's totally artificial. That's mm. and it's like part of the blind spot of doing task fMRI that you can't make people do realistic things because you have to lay in the dark and hold still. Right. So there's all this overhead that yep. is actually in real action. So I think the effects you might get. I don't know that you would get overt movements unless you really crank it up like um Graziano did in monkeys, but that's yeah. like five hundred milliseconds of stim. I don't I don't think that's considered saving people because you might be giving people seizures, right? Mm. So if you stick with what's safe, you might not get any movements, but you might get these other effects on arousal, maybe, seizure threshold, yeah. pain, 
uh, physiology, organ stuff, top down or bottom up. I mean, my pet peeve, do you know a lot about the vagus nerve? Not much, no. I, I keep thinking it's hard to prove, right? Like that the vagus nerve sort of gets some of the information top down, bottom up goes into the system because it looks like it's just a middle insula, you know, all these sort of organ things. Yes. It's also part of activity, right? Like, I mean, my favorite example is like my nervousness thing is before I used to be like, I had to give a presentation. Now I don't really care anymore, but as the first time or as the fan or something, I feel like I had to pee for like an hour. Hmm. I didn't have to pee anymore. I went to yeah. the bathroom like 10 times and I'm still like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's like Damasio. It all hangs together. Like, it's like, if you're going to fight a bear, maybe you empty your bladder. You I'm, the, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm in a presentation yeah. as, as a band, but like my brain is like, you're fighting a bear because it's very important to me. <laughs> so it's like, keep sending me to the bathroom and now I'm like, oh, oh, that makes sense now. You know, it's less, it's less weird. Um, so anything thoughts. Yeah, sorry. Good. No, I mean, so I would say it's sort of like my latest conceptualization is like the scan plus the sort of higher order stuff that's interwoven with it, like what we used to call the single proton network. I mean, this goes back to Mike's 2005 paper I think it's sort of the anti DM, DMN kind of like that there's this yin yang and that it's sort of like there's just like there's a specific dedicated network to set up the default mode which goes beyond that network there might be a dedicated so active mode network that has this circuitry right and has effects like arousal that, that may be spread um, you know which is why like if I'm honest I, mean, I talked about this at the DBS thing. Like, I used to think DBS for generalized epilepsy was completely nuts. Because, mm. like, how could you have a focal effect everywhere? Come on, right? I totally changed my mind. Like, now I'm like, oh, no, this now makes sense to me, right? There's ascendings coming from the reticular activating system. There's probably a node in the thalamus. We can turn everything down a little bit, and that might work just like a benzo, de facto, kind of, and lower, you know, raise your seizure threshold. I don't know. What do you think about that one? No, no, but very much so. And I think just for the listeners to highlight that the, if, you, if you see it from the scan network that you found the, the one thing in the subcortex that really lights up like a light bulb. I mean, there's there's lots of nodes, but but in the thalamus, really CM and specifically CM, right? Or, or at the midline, um, medial medial um, thalamus. So so essentially these these nuclei that are the only ones that project to the striatum from, from the thalamus and then also project very diffusely across the entire cortex. That is the one of the targets for epilepsy for DBS, right? So that it's really cool to now follow up on that, and I think people are already doing that um, around the world because your your paper is so prominent now in Nature. So I'm sure, stuff will come up there very very soon by you and others. Um, it's also the target for um, for Tourette's, right? So that could be another potential interest. Um, I know personally of people looking into that um, now with, with with your data in mind. That's super super interesting. I think we 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 learn a lot lot more on this story in the next few years. What what you briefly mentioned is the effectors are might be newer. So to that end, you know, animals moved around or still move around without a cortex, just fine, right? So so and then at some point cortex came, probably just worked a lot with striatum together to do stuff. Um, and that might have been, as you say, maybe more the the scan network, and then. I think what's new to primates is actually that M1 can directly control 
um, the motor neurons that that not every animal can do that, right? And, and these are more maybe was necessary for the finer motor skills of hand movements, finger movement, all that. So so it it makes sense that the scan is older, the effectors are newer. Might also make may explain that it's slightly different in monkeys, maybe not as elaborate yet. Um, you know, super interesting there to to think about. Um, if you wouldn't have the effector nodes, would you still be able to move around well? Um, you know, and so yeah. I mean, my thesis is this comes from stroke neurologists. Several have come up after they see me present this independently, even when I didn't bring it up, saying, "Oh, this makes more sense for stroke recovery, right?" Because it looks like the scan is much more bilateral, um, yeah. and um, right, the, the the most significant stroke effect typically is the, the fingers, right? Yeah, and fine finger isolation. And you start getting shoulder back and you know elbow and even the wrist, um, even in strokes where you looks like you really hurt the corticospinalis tract on one side. Um, so my hypothesis is that the scan with some time and maybe plasticity can do pretty good for most of the upper limb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it can move your fingers a little bit, but crudely. It's almost like yeah. you got gross motor fingers, but yeah. not. Seems like the fine motor fingers is. Is you want your effector specific classic yeah. M1, yeah. Um, and yeah. I have to say this: you told me about Cheese X work. I've been like low key obsessed. <laughs> I've been. He's I've, amazing. Yeah, I've been reading it, and and like I was literally like on the website looking up the amphioxus and lancelets and reading about lampreys, and I've been talking to people, but I have to give like a yeah. preamble because I don't want them to think I'm gone like really weird already. So like, I'm not. Here's why I'm going to tell you about the lamprey now because, <laughs> you know. Not because I think we should study. Anyway, but I, I, so that, that that kind of thinking, I you know you pointed me to that. I I really love it because it's yeah, um it is it it he's uh, writing a book. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I listened I to the podcast be... episode yeah, you sent yeah. me, and so I'm. Although it sounds like it might be a while because that's true. It's still but yeah. I can't wait for that to come out because it's uh it's such hard work. But I feel like knowing that is so. So helpful when you think about looking at the human brain, how it looks and what it yeah. is today, you know? Very much. So I, I had lunch with him in Montreal uh, together with Max Schein and, and he mentioned one chapter will be about the orbitofrontal cortex, where which we which we usually associate more for um for value encoding, right? But looking back into animals, it was more about food and makes sense, right? And it's also close to the gustatory cortex and all that. So encoding the value of food might have over time become for us more also encoding, you know, values, ideas, concepts, situations, and so on. But animals in the beginning mainly, you know, thought about food and is this good food or bad food or whatever. So, so um, you know, that that line of thinking of phylogenetic refinement, I think, is very powerful. And uh, yeah. Honestly, I, 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 it's hard. I, you just have to know and some ways. He's doing the work of figuring it all out and putting it in a book. Uh, absolutely. I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I'm taking too much of your time. I still want to maybe finish up with a few more questions sure. um, to wrap up. So um, is Midnight Scan Club 2.0 coming? Any new data set you want to? I think at some point you planned it. Yeah, yeah, I know. In the sense that uh, we're not doing it at midnight anymore. Yeah. You know, feel like we do like, more funding. Not that we're flush, but, you know, we have yeah. some. And then, uh, but, but like the basic principle we're doubling down on like, I feel like most folks I talk to they're like okay so now can you just get less data and I've decided to go full militant here and 
some folks I work with, they agree. It's like, no, 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 we're not going to get less data. I think we're going to get more data per participant, but we want better data because it's, it's this weird thing. It, I don't even understand why, but it's like every time we get a better resolution, better SNR scan, literally on the same person, it's not like maybe we don't see it for the first time, but it's like we perceive it because it's just a little crisper. Mm. You're even more confident and you go, this weird thing, you know, we're going to, we're going to make that a project. Like somebody's got to figure out what's going on here. This is not what I thought. It's not the textbook. Right. So, and then, I don't know. The other analogy would be like microscopes. Like I'm trying to read a little bit about the history of microscopes. And it's like, you know, they, they saw cells and then all they did to the organelles is they just got a lot better microscope. And so that's so I'm always like, why don't we just get like a better microscope? And my favorite studies are the Harvard group, you know, um, you probably know them all, the the, the hundred micron brain. Yeah. Like literally we often restart cool. by looking oh, yeah. at the hundred micron brain. Because it's like you like we were looking at the dentate nucleus. And I was like, okay, the dentate's not a nucleus. Yeah. It, it's, it's like a mini, it's like, a mini cortex, like a nucleus. Yeah, it. And you're like, oh, absolutely. The olive called yeah. a nucleus, and in the textbook, <laughs> it's always like an almond. And then you have to look at the real thing. Was like, you shouldn't have called it a nucleus. I need to think about this differently. You know? Yeah. Right. Fun fact: I yeah. when I was a postdoc here in Boston, I I saw data like that by Brian at Edlow's lab, and also at the Martino Center in more general. And I was blown away and I told Brian, hey, you have to just publish that data set because a lot of people would would love to have that, right? And so, so I, I, I am a co-author on it, and and I, oh, I didn't even know that. Was to, yeah, was to yeah. normalize it to an eye brain. No. didn't do a great job, but I think we have better versions. Well, you did a good job. That's key, though, because that's key for usability. So I didn't know you did that. That's but I think I think they have they have much more data like that at Martinos, and you know I will. I think it should more should be out there. I, yeah, I, you should I, keep I, talking I, though, because I remember I <laughs> talked to both Andre van der and Jonathan Palomani about it. I think separately, in because I was like a fanboy, so when it came out, I, I worked with some other stuff, and and they were both like, "Oh, we didn't want to publish it because the engineering was incremental." And then I think it was Polymeni, and he launched into like this incremental engineering. And it was like every step was redone better, but and then like, but you know, there wasn't like groundbreaking. And I was like, well, first of all, what you just described sounds groundbreaking to me. And then it's like, you made the best picture of the brain. It's like, well, yeah, the neurologists they got really excited. They he made us. We weren't gonna publish that. I was like, "You weren't gonna publish that, exactly. No, we didn't think that was interesting. You know." Yes. And I was like, "That is an experience." I had yeah. goosebumps. Like literally, I have looked at it when I was feeling down, because yeah. like when I feel down about science, people are like neuroscience bogus. And I'm like, "Look at that. Look, look, look with these imaging or MRI anymore." And it's like, look, "Look, you can see it. This is so cool." And I, I know I've heard from people that they got even better stuff. I can't wait. Yeah, like you just gotta see it. Exactly. And, and put it out there because this is really, you know, it's a bit like they have the great microscope. Everybody in the else doesn't. So it's kind of almost a must to, to make that data available, I think. Same with the PLI data and yeah. all these things. I'm, I mean, it's great that big brain exists and all. I mean, here's what we should do. I've, to, I've told this to, I think, Andre, for sure, maybe Dylan Tisdall, too, is not Penn and probably many. Uh, we should just do the best imaging you can do in a living person. Because I, I was talking to them about, like, what can we do? And they were like, well, you know, like, our stuff is dead. I was like, yes, I know. I know there's going to be breathing <laughs> and stuff. But, like, work with me. Like, what if you if you really is, like, the, the best you can currently yeah. do. And I remember talking to Paul and Manny, We haven't done it. 
about resolution and stuff. And, and he was like, ah, it can't be done. I was like, try me. Like, how crazy? And he's like, mm. he probably is doing math in his head that I probably wouldn't understand. And he's like, we need 100 hours, I think, of data. Wow. I was like, I was like, I'm taking notes. Like, I'm not saying I can, I have time next week, but it's like, that's not impossible. I just, yeah, just really difficult. Maybe. Um, so, anyway, if, you know, so he's can't He's scanning on, on with a cardiac gated flash sequence, and that's out there in DTBS. It's a it's a living seven Tesla scan. It's, it's beautiful as well. It's not no comparison to the dead one, yeah. But but um, I think and that was take took ages because it's you know cardiac gated, right? Okay. And and but but it, I think it's it's um still really beautiful data of of a human living brain. I use that in slides, right? I compare the dead and the and me in, in yeah. living, um, and so 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 I think. You're totally right. It would be great to to see. Um, I've noticed is that I've noticed you have the most beautiful underlay. Is that what you use sometimes? Is that you you're not no, but, underlay? No, that's that's the Edlo brain usually okay. use that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the the okay. under micron one. Okay, so briefly about the company. So so you have multiple patterns on both precision functional mapping, and and let me know if you need to run. But um, yeah, you know we're we're slightly over time. Um, recently together with Damien Fair, you founded the company Turing Medical. What what well, do you do there? What is it? What's the story about? We started with uh, uh, real-time motion monitoring and correction stuff at the behavioral level. So there's this thing called Firm Famous Integrated Real-Time MRI Monitoring, which which uses the MR data itself to track head motion, which this was started in 2013 when the big shockwave, like motion ruins, everything happened. We were like, what are we going to do about it? So I guess that's almost the start of that. It's a decade old now. Um, but, but it works really well, especially in kids and patients, because you can see what's happening and you can try to intervene. Like, for example, some kids just will not stop moving yeah. in weird ways that aren't super obvious unless you're actually measuring it. And you can just call it a day and send them home and either give up or come have them come back another time. Or sometimes, you know, they're doing well and then they start moving. It's like they had to pee. We've also got some other stuff. Now we got these like real-time biofeedback games to like entrain them to just holding still, which is a weird thing because most most games are hyperkinetic. So we had to like work on the psychology of that. Um that's where we started, um, and now we're, you know, looking into sort of capitalizing on this superior, what we like to think, superior quality you can get with regards to head motion on any unsedated scan, yeah, and see what we can do with that for essentially medicine, right? Like, like, half fMRI, you know, cleared, and that's the first one we're looking at. But then, of course, all the other imaging modalities like automatizing, um, mapping based on better source data, right? Like, I, I know I know there's folks who are making the worst MRIs look really great with AI now, but there's still a degree of like, well, it'll be even better if the input data are good, right? So I still yeah, a big yeah. fan of putting good data in, even if the math is getting really awesome these days. Um, so that would just the idea that like you start there and then you see what you can do for, you know, modern advanced imaging for use in neurology, psychiatry, and neurosurgery. And I, I think, I mean, you guys are doing that stuff, but I think there's exciting times ahead because the promise of this kind of advanced imaging has been there for like 30 years. And I feel like we haven't quite delivered, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, well, maybe I'm an optimist. I'm always like, it's just, it's about to happen. Like, yeah. you know, like it's about the floodgates supposed to open soon and really change what we can do with, you know, like neuromodulation, probably the big one, I think. Right? Great. So essentially, precision neuroimaging delivered, um, trying to make it products and so on. So that, that's really exciting. 
I, I usually stop stop these interviews with with a series of rapid fire questions, but sure. I'll just give you one, which would be um, advice for young researchers entering into the field of neuroscience. Why? Well, I mean, do you, do you have any? I, David, I have to be very uh, careful with giving advice because I've realized, like, what do I know? Plus, it's like you have your own. No, but you have like luck and biases, you know. It, it's it's like you know when the billionaires are like take risks and I'm like that's called entertainment bias survivor bias right like you don't hear from other people who took risks and failed so man I don't know like uh, maybe 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 like try to be on a good team like um, you can learn a lot from your peers your mentors too but they they can be like remote you know famous whatever and uh, don't try to like if you're the smartest person in in the meeting, like that's not good, you know. Like if you always feel like that, like, it, like, I don't know. I like it when like there's maybe one thing that I know about bunch about, and then every other topic is experts, and I'm just like, oh, like you know, talking to you about DTI, or whatever. It's like I like that, you know. It's a, it's, it's a team sport. And yeah, it's hard with the ego, but if you can like get your ego in check just a little bit, like it just. It's just a lot of fun and it's like easier, you know? Yeah. And there there is some joy of just also celebrating success for yeah. us, right? So it's so a camp yeah. Um of course if you're the only one with no success, that sucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there's nothing against yeah, um your colleagues being successful and yeah. I, I love it. So team sport. Thank you, Nico. This was a long time. Um I, I'm happy that you took all that time and oh yeah, of course for that conversation. So Thanks a lot of um, anything you wanted to cover that we didn't cover, or do you think? No, I feel like the... somebody should interview you one of these days because I I think it's super cool. You know, it, it it's uh you're just doing the service. I know I know you're doing really cool stuff. So oh, maybe maybe that I, I I since Mike is giving guest questions, maybe he should do an episode where he interviews you. Uh, I, I, I <laughs> not not in this one. I really don't want to make it about me, but you know, it's it's not a service. I learned so much. For me, this is such an amazing thing to do. Actually, I, in the beginning, I was doubtful this is worth my time, but by now, oh. it's been so so great, and you know, giving me so much insights. And uh, yeah, I like the format. Talk. I mean, the, those um, those cheese egg podcast episodes you sent me, because I have to do a lot of driving kids around, and it's yeah. perfect for that. You just pop it on, and they weren't. I was like, maybe they'll complain. I, you know. They didn't complain that they had to listen to, uh, you know, well, two things. Great. Evolution of the brain. <laughs> so, Amazing, Nico. Thank you so much. Thank and, you uh, so much, Stay in contact. Yeah. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.